No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. I'm back from my little vacation down to Savannah, Georgia. Had a great time. I'd like to talk more about it. Sometime I will eventually, but had an awesome time. Hoping to put some pictures up on Facebook soon. And uh, during my time away on vacation, I had the chance to read this fantastic book titled Why Science is Wrong, dot, 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 about almost everything. And uh, it's fantastic. And the guest, uh, excuse me, the, the author is Alex. How do you pronounce this now, Alex? Help me out here. I meant to ask you this before, but we were <laughs> chatting. We just uh, paid no attention to the to the business of doing a radio show, so I forgot all no, about it. No, man. <laughs> it's good. It's Sakaris, but uh, that's the last time we'll have to say that. Exactly, exactly. And uh, he's the man behind the enormously popular podcast, Skeptico, and that's S-K-E, uh, well, Skeptico with a K, let's say. That's uh, probably the best way to right. put it. Um, and as I said, the new book is Why Science is Wrong About Almost Anything. And uh, the back page, one of the blurbs describes it as rollicking. And that's really what it is. It's really quite fun. It's a really enjoyable book. It's it's an interesting ride. I felt kind of a kinship here with Alex as I read the book because, uh, you know, he's been doing his show for a long time. I've been doing my show, obviously, for a very long time. And it was, it was fun to sort of watch his journey over the years uh, doing his program and tackling all sorts of different topics, notably consciousness, near-death experiences, but also a whole bunch of other sort of, uh, I'm sure he'll be able to explain it better, but sort of like psychic realm type stuff, psychic detectives, telepathy, healing, those kind of things. He's explored all that on Skeptico with a whole range of really amazing people. I was really, uh, I'll be honest, dude, from a, from a radio producer perspective, reading this book was great because it tipped me off to like three potential new guests for my show where I was like, this guy sounds amazing. I want to talk to this guy. So, Kudos to you, dude. I like people who find different people to talk to, and you found some awesome people, and uh, the, the whole sort of thing comes together in the book, Why Science is Wrong About Almost Anything. And uh, as I said to you earlier, I finished the book a few short hours ago, and I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I feel like we're going to have a real uh, sharp edition of the program tonight, Alex, so thanks for coming on, and uh, let's dig in, man. Absolutely, Tim. Uh, it's exciting to be here, you know. I've been uh, I've, I've listened to you off and on over the years, but you know, in preparation for doing this, I really dug into the, into some more of your shows lately, and just enjoy it. And I think there is a a kinship there, and I love how you kind of are able to stay in the middle. You know, I mean, you are you you can tell you're really a skeptic at heart, but you're way on the other side of where that needs to be of of, of being open to 
all this stuff that's unexplainable that's out there. So I think that's really cool, and I think there's a lot we can talk about. Yeah, man, I'm a, I'm a skeptic uh, who's willing to give the benefit of the doubt, which is <laughs> part of the problem with the re- with the uh, with the faux skeptics. I don't even know what you want to call them, the uh, the hardcore skeptics. Uh, now, you said you've been listening to the show for a while. You may have picked up on this, but we start out when we bring on a guest for the first time. You know, the bio, the background, you know, who is who is Alex T? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about how Skeptico came to be and how it all coalesced here with the new book. Give us some background. Well, Tim, I started the show, like you, I've been doing this for a while, and we were chatting a little bit before the show, that, you know, there's something comes with having done one of these shows and putting few hundred episodes under your belt, but also the kind of person that's willing to, I guess, stick in there for that long, you know, it it takes a certain type, and and I guess I'm that type. I've always loved listening and learning, you know, and and I've always listened to a lot of interviews and a lot of radio before there were podcasts, and I always had a lot of questions that I felt were not answered, and that was really what drove me to start the show. So the technology came, and I had a couple of uh, contacts, and I was lucky enough to get a couple of really good guests at the beginning, and that propelled me into this whole area of kind of fringy, controversial science that I wanted to pin down. So before that, I was really a business guy, you know, and uh, computer guy, MBA guy, and then I actually had gone back to school. I wanted to be a professor, and I was in the Ph.D. program for artificial intelligence at the University of Arizona. I left that to start a small IT company and was pretty fortunate after a lot of mistakes and bumbling around, was was pretty fortunate with that and had the opportunity to spend some time doing the stuff that I was really driven to do, and that was following these big-picture questions that just seemed to pop up and I was surprised but they just seemed to be unanswered uh, to to a large extent you know and and moreover even if they weren't unanswered it's the people that were answering them I found weren't getting a lot of attention or, or worse yet were really being you know just battered by the mainstream science as being fringy you know and woo woo guys and when I talk to them they're the only ones who made any sense so that in a nutshell is what started me on this journey of uh, Skeptico and just following the data kind of wherever it leads. Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, it's uh, once you start digging into this, you get fall deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. <laughs> it changes your worldview in, in a lot of ways. Um, now, one of the things I thought was really interesting, which I kind of, I'm sure it always sort of been in my mind, really, but it, I never sort of seemed to coalesce it until I read the book, which is pretty cool, uh, that at the heart of like at the heart of the whole problem it seems uh of all of this is consciousness because it seems like it's this variable that no one even understands or how to how to even no one even knows really anything about it it seems uh you know what we know about it is like infinitesimal compared to what we don't know about it uh might be the best way to put it and and and, and it's the center of <laughs> of all of us so it, it colors the entire experience uh and the ability and and attempts to understand the experience i.e science so i guess talk a little bit about consciousness um because it really seems to be at the core of uh of of sort of your journey i think it is at the core i think it is at the core of science and science's kind of inability to get outside of this 
little uh, cul-de-sac cesspool that it's found itself in. But it took me a long time to really figure that out. I mean, it's kind of a simple idea when you kind of stack it all up. But the, the, the process of finding that out was really what was, was difficult, but it was at the same time exciting. Here's the way I put it. You know, science really boils down to two questions. Who are we and why are we here? And if you think about that, that's not just, you know, it, it's kind of more true than you, than you might at first think. Think about evolution, which is, you know, probably the dominant scientific question in the kind of political, culture, social debate, right? Evolution, evolution, and that's what all those guys talk about. What's evolution about? Who are we? Why are we here? You know, how did we get here? Think about Big Bang, you know, Big Bang or string theory, all the rest of that. Same thing. Who are we? Why are we here? Take the social sciences are all about that. I mean, psychology is openly about who are we? Maybe not so much why are we here, but who are we? And then, you know, anthropology, you just go down the list. Essentially, at the core, many, many of the big science questions boil down to those two questions. Who are we and why are we here? Hmm. And those questions, I think, the way they're answered by science as we know it today is like this. You are a biological robot in a meaningless universe. That is science's answer to who you are and why you're here. And it's complete bullshit. It just is. And the reason it's bullshit and the reason that they've – back themselves into such a ridiculous position to say that, you know, you, you don't look at your parents, you don't look at your kids as biological robots. You, you, you don't. You know, the, the whole issue of, of free will, you know, which the philosophers, and I've talked to them, Oxford philosophers, Harvard philosophers, all Ivy League, Princeton neuroscientists, I've talked to all of them. They, they stumble over this free will and they make it more complicated you just talk to any kid in the first grade and say, do you have free will? Do you have choice? Do you have decision? Of course, it's obvious. But we've kind of talked ourselves into this convoluted, complicated bullshit that's of, of, of web that science has spun. And the, the reason that all this has mounted up is, as you alluded to, because we have this problem with consciousness. Consciousness being that little voice inside your head, you know, that little, the, the, the way I explain it in the book, you know, I'll do it right here for everybody. Here's the little consciousness experiment. You know, just stop for a minute, take a breath, and say this. Say hello to yourself. Just say it inside your head. Say hello. And then I ask the question, did you hear that? Well, of course you heard it. We all hear it. Well, that part of you that is able to observe you saying hello and observe that is the essence, if you will, of consciousness. It's the voice inside your head. It's there for all of us, and science is completely fumbled the ball on explaining that. And the way they fumbled it, they've explained it, is, is that that's an illusion – It's a product of your brain because you're a biological robot in a meaningless universe, so that's just an illusion. And the best science, as I've discovered on the show and as I've written about in the book, just directly refutes that. Refutes that by observation, refutes that by experimentation, time and time again in many, many different ways.
So that's I think if you and I think if you get that wrong, I think science is wrong about almost everything. I mean, if you can't get that part right, you can't get a lot right after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 someone pointed out the well, actually, Rupert pointed it out in the intro that he he didn't agree with the title of the book. So, but you stood by it, that science is wrong about almost everything. I mean, the way the way you're saying it, it does kind of make sense because it's like. I think well, we, I, I, you know, Rupert Sheldrick, who again did write the forward to the book, mm. and is a great, uh, just a great scientist, oh, and, and a friend of mine, and, and somebody, you know, he's a Cambridge biologist, published in Nature, highly respected guy, um, but we have a difference of opinion on that. And you know, one of the things I like, people always ask me about the forward to the book, and I got back the forward to the book, and I was like, shit, do I really want to put that forward <laughs> to the book? And I thought, hell yes. I mean, this is, I love, you know, like we were talking a little bit before the show, you know, about what we might talk about and about, you know, because you got some, you've accumulated some interesting experiences and the people you've talked to. You know, I know how much I've grown from the people I've talked to. I can only imagine, you know, the what where that's taken you. So you don't even I, want to I like engaging <laughs> What's that? I said you don't even want to imagine that. <laughs> no, I, I, I do. I do, and I, know, I really want to get into yeah. that. But my, my <laughs> point with Rupert is just that, you know, I don't have to agree with – I don't have to agree with everybody. And he's a scientist, and that's how he makes his living, and he can't endorse a book that says science is wrong right, about right, almost right. everything. Well, the whole point I the, can. The whole point of the title is to be provocative anyway. I mean, that's, you know, why science is wrong is like that's as provocative as <laughs> you can be, so it makes sense. And I always ask the question, I always ask the flip side, uh, so do you think science is right about almost everything? And, okay, now we can have a dialogue. So, okay, it isn't wrong about almost everything, but it sure as hell isn't right about almost everything. And I just pointed out to you why I don't think it's right about almost everything. So, you know, now we can have a conversation. But most people are stuck on the idea that, oh, my God, don't challenge. You can't say that. Don't say science is wrong. Yeah, well, believe me, I have, I have a lot of problems with science. It's all messed up. Um, well, you know, and that's one question I guess I guess I had for you, <clears throat> because Tim, when I was explaining this to you, you know, I think that the the UFO situation, enigma, whatever you want to call it, is kind of riddled by this same kind of absurdity, you know. And it's I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but it's like, hey, no, no matter what you think about the details and the infighting and the you know, aliens versus military operation, conspiracy, abduction, however that. We still have this thing that is happening. We have hundreds of thousands of pages of documents from around the world. We have eyewitness, you know, uh, evidence of it. Why wouldn't this, why wouldn't we have a man on the moon effort to get to the bottom of it, whatever it is? I mean, what do you think about how can these guys be sitting on their hands no matter what position they take on it? You know, I was thinking about that actually today. Uh, I, I kind of coined my own expression. It's that, uh, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence if you're an extraordinary asshole. But <laughs> extraordinary claims should really inspire extraordinary investigation. That's really how it should be. So Carl Sagan got it wrong. That's really the <laughs> the root of the issue here. You know, it's you know like if you we have extraordinary point. claims, that should inspire extraordinary, you know, effort to go after what it is, not, you know, extraordinary scoffing. 
<laughs> that doesn't make any sense. No, that's that's 100% spot on, and you got to coin that because I'm going to be using that, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll give you attribution on it, but that's awesome because I've had so many of those arguments, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. No, extraordinary claims require extraordinary, what is it, extraordinary investigations, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what right it requires, on. man, yes. because it's ex- yes. extraordinary. Um, but, yeah, the consciousness thing, I, I totally, like I said, I really kind of lit a fuse for me uh, from reading the book because uh, – you know, it does seem to be sort of this essence that's that's the core problem, the core mystery of it all that uh, that really centers so – everything seems to revolve around that. What? But so you're saying that sci- scientists, if you talk to like, I don't know, a neurologist, I guess, who even is an expert on consciousness? Is that like a psychologist or is it a neurologist? It's like, I suppose uh, there's all different sorts of people who could weigh in on it, right? Well, it, it, it gets really um, philosophical. If once you venture in that, yeah, you know, so because we don't know what it is, so then it becomes these kind of philosophical debates and stuff like that. But at the essence, to keep it really simple, science requires consciousness to be an illusion because science is all. I mean, think about it. Science is all about measurement, right? I mean, that is the essence of science. If we can't me- if we can't observe it and we can't measure it, we don't have anything in science. Right, right, well, right. As soon as you start saying there's another factor outside of that, then you really have a big problem. You know, it's like the way that uh, the way that I explain it in the books. I said, what if we were to take a really simple experiment like? boiling water, you know, and you say, okay, I want to I want to see what temperature water boils at. And you go, okay, that's a pretty simple experiment. Well, I'm a pretty simple guy. That's how I like to take things. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, that's easy. Water boils at 212 degrees. So, well, I, wait a minute. It's not quite that simple, right? Because if you're up in the Rocky Mountains, it boils a little bit lower temperature. If you have a little bit of salt or other impurities, it also changes the boiling, Right. So now we have these variables that we've introduced that can change this really simple experiment. Well, when you switch over and you talk about consciousness, now if consciousness is just an illusion, it's just a product of the brain, the way the, 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 the consciousness people will say is perhaps it's an epiphenomena of the brain. It just comes out of the brain somehow some magical way. Or they'll say it's an emergent property of the brain, which is like a fancy way of saying it's an epiphenomenon of the brain, but we won't get into that. It's just something but that just happens. They say it's just, it, you just all of a sudden develop this, this sense of awareness. That's what they're saying. Right. right. They say your brain is so, so complex, so we don't really know how, but it just starts out this electrical mush, and then somehow consciousness springs forward. And that's what they have to stick to. Because if consciousness isn't that, if consciousness is somehow more than just the brain, then you go back to the water problem, the boiling water problem, and you got a big problem now because now yeah. you got another variable. Can I just look at that glass of water and will it to boil at a higher temperature, a lower temperature? Can I pray for it? Can I, I have this consciousness. It's not in me. You know, mm. you have a huge problem that affects everything if consciousness isn't just a product of the brain. Yes. Right, right. You, you, you make the point in the book. It kind of blows up the whole, uh, <laughs> the, the whole world of science. It's, it, it, I think the fact that it's so nebulous means 
it's remarkable that so many people don't sort of like wrap their minds around that. Like even I just said, I mean, I've been looking at this stuff for a long time and I never kind of considered all that, but it's, you know, people are so caught up in their everyday lives. They're not like, well, I am a cautious being. What does this all mean? <laughs> you know, are we, are we wrongly uh, perceiving the entire world? Well, uh, I think the other thing is that we kind of, and I don't know, but I think this is another kind of crossover with your world or the stuff that you typically investigate in my stuff. And that is that, you know, we all live juggling a lot of absurdities. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if you're a church-going person or, a, you know, somebody like that, you deal with absurdities every time, right? I mean, I know a lot of people who are at least somewhat religious, and, it, you know, if you ever have a serious conversation with them over a beer at the, you know, watching the game, they'll be like, well, I don't really believe all that stuff, you know, but, you know, it seems this or that. You know, they're balancing these absurdities of, hey, this is what my religion tells me I have to, but they don't really believe that. Yeah. We look at politics, we don't really believe all that stuff. And if you're like you or I, you further don't even believe it, you know. Yeah. But even everybody goes, well, you never. So we're all kind of balancing all that stuff. So when they hear a scientist say, you know, you don't have free will, it's uh, you're a biological robot, they go, hey, you know, that's just science. Don't worry about that. They still, they did a good job with the iPhone. They did a good job with my yeah. satellite TV, you know. It's, it's it's all bullshit, you know, just try and make my way through. But when you really want to sit down and pull it apart, I, it's a mess. It doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense at all. Mm. And it seems to sort of follow the narrative of uh, of why science is wrong. It seems like a, 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 you you really also focus on the near death experiences as perhaps the key, you know, piece of evidence that that uh, unlocks the consciousness from the uh, imposed scientific paradigm, which is has been it, uh, it, forced on. It's certainly probably the most, you know, graphic, uh, in-your-face example. Mm. There's a bunch of other examples, but I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, so now we got this debate, right? Hey, is consciousness a product of the brain? Well, shit, I, game over right here. I got this person, they died. They died. And, you know, people go, well, they didn't really die. They came back to life. No. Talk to, like, one of the leading resuscitation physicians in the world, Dr. Sam Parnia, formerly of Cornell. Now I forget where he's at, some other university. Top guy, one of the top people in the world in resuscitation. He will tell you just flat out that if you say near death, that is a, a, a misnomer. These people have died. For all the ways that we measure it, and if we don't do anything, they're not coming back. Their heart is stopped. They're, we can assume, for because we've done so many medical tests, and, and, and we know that within 10 to 15 seconds of your heart stopping, all the electrical activity in your brain stops. So we, we know these people have the no reflex reaction, you know, where they pull their eye open and they stick a, a light in there. You know, these people are dead, so they have no brain. And yet they come back and we're able to test these people. And we can talk about some of the tests, some of the peer-reviewed tests they've done, research, to say that these people had some conscious experience and a really extraordinary conscious experience during that time after their brain died. So it's game over. I mean, uh, we can go into all the other ways to prove it, but near-death experience, game over. These are people... They didn't have a brain, 
and they had a conscious experience. Mm. So brain equals mind cannot be true. And it's amazing because this is the NDE thing that's been around for a long time, at least, uh, you know, right. sort of entered into the into the public consciousness, no pun intended, um, you know, ah, decades ago at this point. So it's been it's sort of an interesting field to watch um, rather than sort of talk about the evidence for the NDEs, what I thought was interesting because I've heard the evidence for NDEs. I mean, believe me, this it's 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 rock solid. Um, what I thought was interesting in the book was uh, you, you I, I, I got to give you kudos to you because the fact that these people, these folks were on your show and they said some of this stuff, these these anti NDE experts, let's say. Um, and they said this stuff on the record just makes them look so ridiculous. Um, there was a, 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 a person named Blackmore. I don't have it right in front of me, the, the name. Yeah, and she said Susan she, Blackmore. Susan Blackmore said she just gave up on this stuff after you had kind of cornered her on uh, NDEs. And then, and then later on she goes and does a lecture about it, about you know, why NDEs are bullshit. So, yeah. so you know, in one breath she's like, I don't even follow this stuff anymore. I don't even understand the research anymore. I don't read it. Um, you know, I don't follow this at all. I'm out of the NDE game. And then later on, she goes and does a lecture why NDEs are bullshit. And then uh, this other person, uh, this Dr. Watt, you know, she had written an article that was apparently, like, completely full of holes. And when you corner her on the thing, she says, uh, you know, hey, I was just trying to be provocative. I wasn't trying to be balanced. Right. It's like, lady, I mean, come on. If there, had, if, if there was, like, a license to practice science for all these people who are like, well, science is tough. Yeah, well, then maybe there should be a license, and if there is a license, then Doctor Watt should fucking lose her license because she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't know what she's doing. Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting that you say that, and and I love the the couple of uh, you know examples that you gave because they they really are good ones. You know, Carolyn Watt is uh, a professor at um, where University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And she's the head of the parapsychology department, which you'd think would be, of course, open to kind of exploring this kind of fringy stuff. But, you know, here's another parallel probably with the UFO community. You know, a lot of times there's these wolves in sheep clothing, and Carolyn Watt is one of those. So she's really anti-parapsychology, but she's kind of worked herself into this position where she's in a department, a parapsychology department. And uh, so she writes this this paper. And uh, let me get the title of that. Uh, oh, the, the title of it was, There's Nothing Paranormal About Near-Death Experiences. And she, they get it published in this peer-reviewed journal. And, man, this thing gets cited all over the place. Yeah, it must have gone viral, right, in the, uh, in the I, websites and shit, right? And, and, and it's it's really strange, man. I mean, when stuff comes out, and I've I've done a couple of stories on this with uh, science uh, writers, stuff comes out that is super skeptical of near death experience. Man, it hits all the science publications. They right. all pick it up, you know. Oh, there's so let the, me let me jump in because there's two things I want to say to that uh, that, that tie into my notes here from the book, and that's. You know, because this connects again to the anti-NDE folks. Jeff Long, he has to respond to this expert that says NDEs are uh, anesthesia-induced. And, and now he has to spend his time explaining something that was already easily showable is not the case. And he has exactly. to waste time over this, like, throwaway exactly. fact that this expert just throws in there just because they're lazy, essentially. Um, or, or, you know, 
or nefarious. That's part of the two right. possibilities. You know, and I think Sheldrake has to do the same thing later on with Weissman. Uh, you know, he starts throwing out these things, and he says, these are standard criticisms I thought of in the first five minutes of, like, looking at this mystery. It's like these people just think that they, they think that these pe- that they think that the researchers who are doing the research are, are morons that didn't that haven't considered their, their obvious answers. It doesn't make any you know. It's very frustrating to deal with with uh, these lazy responses to the mystery. Well, it, it is, but you know, doesn't that kind of ring some bells? <laughs> you oh, know, exactly. in terms of yeah, other stuff you've seen. And you see hey, why I'm getting fired yeah. up about it? Because I don't I don't think it's just that, you know. Yeah. Exactly. I don't, these people are trying to cover their asses and make sure that uh, none of this stuff ever gets through because then they're right. they're going to be out of a job or or antiquated overnight. Right. I mean, if if you were, if, if I'm not saying this is the case, I'm not going full bore conspiratorial. But if you wanted to kind of suppress a little bit one point of view and advance another point of view, if you had a, a reason for doing that. Wouldn't one way to do it be exactly what you're saying? I mean, let's run these guys. There's only a few of them that are brave enough to even do this because we're not going to give them any money. We're not going to really give them any support. So let's run them, let's run them ragged with bullshit kind of things. Right. Let's throw a bunch of flyers at them. You know, let's let's a lot of insults and stuff like that, and just discredit them. But also let's you know poke at them here and there, run them ragged, and then. When we get a little something over here that we can do that, that, you know, when we can get Carolyn Watt to publish his paper, which, uh, you know, there's nothing paranormal about near-death experiences, and you're totally right, Tim. So what I did, uh, so, so you get her to publish this paper. Now, when I pushed her on the paper, exactly what you said, I said, okay, uh, Dr. Watt, first, right off the bat, your primary source on this paper. So first of all, there's no research in the paper. There's no original research. None. She didn't do any experiments. She didn't talk to anyone who had a near death experience. She did like a book report, you know? Yeah. She took a lot of different stuff, put it together and wrote it which is not in and of itself is not, you know, illegitimate. But her first and primary source was a guy who's a highly respected near death experience researcher, Dr. Pin Van Lamel from the Netherlands, highly regarded cardiologist, you know, works with people who died, works with near-death experience. She totally bungles his quote. She actually put in a citation from his paper that isn't ever in it, never appeared in any of his papers. It's just completely bogus. Now, I'm not saying it was probably a mistake on her part, but it's a huge mistake. It's the only, it's the only real legitimate one that she had in there. As you said, you know, the other person she cites is uh, Susan Blackmore. And again, I, I called her on that because, I, I mean, I am kind of obsessive about pursuing these people. So I've talked to, I've talked to all of them. Anyone who has, you know, any kind of credentials and has been critical of near-death experience, you know, I have 250 shows, but I've talked to them. So, yeah, Susan Blackmore, I just, I mean, I don't want to be too, but anyone can listen to that. I mean, she does not, she, at least she's honest. She said, as you said, she said, well, you know, I'm out of the field. I haven't done any of that research. For me to be a, a, a legitimate and have a proper answer, I, you know, she's British. I should have done the research, so I can't really say. Yet there's Carolyn Watts citing her in her paper as one of, you know, that's one of her primary pieces of evidence of this. Right. So. Back to the back to the story we're talking about. So here's this big 
peer-reviewed article. There's nothing paranormal about near-death experiences. You push into it, it's all bullshit. They misquoted the only real near-death experience researcher. They got this other one that's just really not at all qualified. Like you said, you push her on the title. She goes, well, you know, I didn't really have anything to do with the title. Yeah, I don't think the title's very good. I wasn't trying to be balanced. I was just trying to be provocative. You know, again, it's totally, totally anti-science. But now, back to our thing. This Does this get legs? Oh, yeah, man. This is picked up by everybody. Right. You know, uh, BBC, Discover, Science Network, everyone's pounding this at people. And, and no one ever cares or worries if it's true or not. So that's the way the game is played. And, you know, is there some master control behind it? I don't know, but I don't want to rule it out either. It sure seems too convenient the way it all plays out. Yeah, I, I part of me thinks it's maybe just sort of like sociological conditioning, like human nature. That uh, yeah. well, it also it ties in here. You had a great quote in the book that uh, that that I may co-opt down the line. That's that science has a profound fear of death. It definitely seems to be the case that uh, you know that it, it, it because it's such a difficult topic to even study. It, they don't seem to do much with it. You know. Yeah. It feels like. I don't know. I mean, I just feel like maybe they could be do- doing more with NDEs, but they're probably afraid of, like, killing someone somehow. But there should be, you know, can't you induce an NDE in a mouse and try and figure out if it can, <laughs> if it can do something? Like, why can't, you know, I'd, I'd like to see see more study of death, but it just seems like science doesn't want to even deal with it, um, you know, because that's the end. And then there's nothing, they, they, uh, probably because they don't want to have to prove the whole consciousness thing or even look at it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if, you know, I just heard this stat not too long ago, and it's kind of stunning. But, you know, for each of us, about 50 to 60 percent of the total medical costs of our accumulated life spent in the last six months of our life, right? So most of us are going to get old, we're going to die, we're going to go to the hospital, they're going to hook us up with all this equipment, they're going to do it. So not only is we, can we say science is afraid of death, but we've built this entire mechanism around this incredible fear that we have so that we'll do anything to suspend that you know great unknown of death you know because we know it's the end that's all Mm. there is to it yeah 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 it's like death prevention is uh the real is the the real where people put their effort but uh and i'm sure you know as i was saying this i I, you know i have i'm sure there's there's going to be people because we do get a lot of folks who are pretty hardcore uh you know, skeptics or into the science end of things or, or sort of in that realm, open-minded though still. And, you know, I'm sure I'll get some folks who email me that, that'll be like, well, a, you know, a nec- uh, you know, a necrologist or something is like a, is, a, is, a, is an expert in science. There are people who study death. Uh, you know, that's what I'm afraid I'm going right. to get. But I mean, maybe there are, but I, it's not like some, I've never heard of anyone going to school to study death. I don't even know if there's, a, um, there may be some branch of science that studies death, but I, I, God, if I know, and, and uh, well, you, you know, think something you, that profound and huge, you would know it as well as you know a neurologist studies the brain. I think your point's really well taken. I was just, again, it was just today I was listening to this interview with the guy I was mentioning not too long ago, Sam Parnia, resuscitation expert. Now, he's probably closest to exactly what you're talking about, and that's what he studied, Right resuscitation is studying death, you know, because resuscitation don't work most of the time. So, you know, usually you're studying. So hmm. he's just, and those are his conclusions. Yeah, like an he's accidental not, uh, death and research yeah, is yeah. really what it is. And, and uh, so that's 
and, and he is saying kind of the same thing that you're saying, saying, you know, we need to study, we need to push. He says, look at resuscitation. Resuscitation is already pushing that envelope that we're talking about of death, and it's pushing it further and further. You know, we're able to resuscitate more and more people and further and further into this state of death. And where is that leading? But I'm telling you, man, when you talk to those people that are close to death or who study death, the same thing goes if, if you go and, and look at a hospice worker, a hospice nurse, or a hospice dark doctor. Those people all will be, uh, immediately start telling you the stories about near-death experience, about um, terminal lucidity. Have you ever heard of that term, Tim? Yeah, that's when someone who has Alzheimer's uh, has like a day or two of clarity uh, and full recollection before they die. Exactly. So you go talk to people in hospice, they'll go, you know, they'll be like, when no one's looking, they'll go, oh, yeah, shit, was <laughs> all the time. So, again, to your point, you know, there's, there's like 50 dissertation, Ph.D. dissertations right there. No one wants to do that shit. No one's going to get funded to do that stuff. And no one's – there just doesn't seem to be the will to do that stuff because our whole system – and this, I think, is just probably like you said, just the way the – the gears work and it's already set up to work, but it, it just no one, no one's going to do that. And if somebody did do it, um, I don't care what any like uh, science advocate says. I don't think that study that study would go as far as the, as, as the well done studies that of experts you've talked to on your show. You know, it yeah. would just get poo pooed, marginalized, and then have a whole bunch of really awful first problems that would have already been figured out. Uh, you know cancellations thrown against them so folks would have to deal with it so it's right. you know there's all these roadblocks set up right. anyway so i'm sure you know there may be like someone listening right now who can send us a thing where it's like oh here's a here's a great study on it but you know never gets anywhere it's really uh it's really frustrating it's really frustrating like i said this thing with the science having a profound fear of death i think there's a big key to it there you know i agree and they agree. and they tap into the people's fear of death too so right well, they, they they promote it, too. I mean, they not only tap into it, they create it, enhance it, you know, nurture it. You know? Yeah. Um, now, like I said earlier, when we started out talking, uh, what I liked about the book a lot, too, is it's sort of about your journey. And you, you kind of allude to that at one point in the book. You were saying, uh, you say that, uh, I don't have who you were speaking to in front of me, but it was during your near-death experience research uh, episodes and uh, you said it was early on in your skeptico education, which is what I thought was kind of a cool way to put it. And you said well, you ne- when you naively thought you could convince science uh, of this stuff just by good research. So at some point along the way, you seem to uh, have realized that's not the case at all, which is something that <laughs> I've realized. Which well, people will in the scientific community will argue with you about, but it's like no, that's just simply not the case. Like good research is not getting through to to these folks. Right, and. Yeah, I mean, that was a major educational turning point for me. I mean, I, I did think that, you, that that science basically works, you know, that guys go out and they find these problems that no one has thought too much about, and they go do good experiments, they get the results, and then people change their mind. And that's the story we're kind of told. And uh, the, the truth is, is far from that. The, 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 the real truth is that most scientists are just employees. You know, they're employees working for a company. And when you put it like that, 
Of course they're not doing groundbreaking work, and of course they're not going to challenge the boss and the paradigm, I mean, in any company. Hmm. What's the real, you know, benefit of doing that? You, you lose your job. Right. So, you know, most people in science, quote-unquote, are not doing kind of cutting-edge stuff. And the ones that do have gotten tenure, which is like rare these days, have figured out how to kind of manage their way through that. So that's a, at one level I found that science, the way it really works, is very different from that kind of naive idea I had of kind of following the data. It's much more political. It's much more corporate. It's just flat-out corporate. I mean, that's been one of the big changes in science is, you know, follow the money. There isn't, there's a reduced amount of money for, from the government for funding that stuff. So these guys are out for scrambling for dollars from wherever, big pharma or industry or whatever. And that's kind of changed it. But the, the other thing is just that it's just a lot more like politics. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Or professional wrestling, you know? <laughs> right. Well, a lot right. of sci- scientists, you know, first they have to pretend it's all real because that's how they make their money. But then when they retire, then they can be like, yeah, of course it's all bullshit. Right. I just kind of wanted to throw the, the sand in the bikini of the science community with that one. So, uh, <laughs> well, there, there's, are, you know, scientists are pro wrestlers. There is a lot of truth in it. And, and, of course, we're being, you know, that's an oversimplification. Yeah, there's a lot of. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the other thing I think that, you know, you have this conversation, and people are going to jump all over this conversation. But oh, one, distinction, one, yeah, one distinction we have to make, and it's an important distinction, is kind of the difference. There's two distinctions. One is the difference between science and engineering, you know. So your iPhone, my computer, I mean, yeah, that's science, but it's really just kind of taking science and saying, okay, how can I go make a buck with that? And that's a different set of rules, you know. Mm. Science is who are we, why are we here, and then engineering is how can I take what you just figured out over there and make a buck out of it. That's one thing. And the other distinction we have to make is, and we already know this, but, you know, you go walk through the halls of university and ask people what is science, you know. Well, you go ask a physicist. It's like the blind men and the elephant kind of thing. Mm. But you go ask a physicist, he's going to have a completely different answer than the guy in psychology or the guy in even in chemistry. But then if you walk over and talk to a guy in anthropology, and I just talked to a couple of anthropologists in the last year who blew me away. I mean, there's a wide open field where people are really willing to explore a lot broader, more open-minded things. And, you know, that'd be heresy. You know, you'd go back and tell the guy in the physics department what anthropology told you, and they'd say, oh, that's just total bullshit. Well, so... You know, science isn't this monolith. The whole idea of, you know, people criticize me for, you know, science is wrong about almost everything. I mean, the joke is science is a method. It's not a position. Science can't be right or wrong. That doesn't right. even make any sense, you know. But we, we, we take it that way, and we've been, we've been built into thinking that, oh, yeah, science is right. Science is wrong. Science says this. Science, science doesn't say shit. It's a toolbox that sits over there in the corner, and you can take it out and use it. That's what science is. Right. In so, society's eyes, it's like almost been replaced. It's replaced God in a way. So that, you know, yeah. that's kind of the way right. I use it here in our little beatdown of, <laughs> of the scientific community, which is really what I'm talking about. But, you know, yeah, science is like the word music. You can't really uh, – you know, you can use it very generally. It means a lot of things, you know. Right. 
and, and and I think you hit the nail on the head when you say, you know, it's it, the 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 classic uh, way that it's used in our culture is in this culture war debate between science and religion. So it's science versus the truth. So when people hear science in the cultural context like that, you mean oh. So you're either a creation, you're a creationist, or you believe in evolution. So evolution is science, creation is a religion. Okay, that's a, so everything must be divided along those lines. It's either God or no God, science or religion, which is just a stuck-on stupid debate that is idiotic. But you know that's where we are. And again, I, I think a lot of a lot of people find cover in that. You know, so the atheists, the skeptics the hardcore science types, they kind of like that little scuffle in the streets between science and religion because it provides cover for really getting at some of these deeper questions. It shit, it, it, it also provides cover from the whole UFO thing. It provide, provides cover certainly from the conspiracy thing, from the, you know, these, these near-death experience researchers I'm, I'm telling you about. They're not religious people. They're not coming at this with, you know, trying to, prove mormonism or catholicism right, right. they're just saying hey i'm a you know i'm a cardiologist frick i got people that die you know on my table every freaking day and some of them wake up and tell me the color of my socks you know of during my when i was resuscitating them and they shouldn't know what the freaking color of my socks are when i was in the resuscitate when i was resuscitating them you know what so i listen to those cuz that doesn't make any sense hmm. you know there's there's one uh, uh account that and this is from jeff long you know dr jeff long radiologist from Louisiana, really one of the best near-death experience researchers. But one of the uh, – and, and he did – you know, you, people say, oh, it's anecdotal and stuff like that. And Jeff has some great points and just – he's done this comprehensive medical survey over 2,000 people. It's medical science, you know, when you do that many. And you have a good uh, – science, the backbone of medical science is surveys. So for these people to say, you know, this is anecdotal is just fucking bullshit. They just don't know what they're talking about. Excuse yeah. me, maybe I went over the line with the language here, but That's one of one of the the accounts that he has is this guy who um, cardiac arrest, so he's dead. They're opening up his heart, trying to bring him back, and uh, oh, he has the cardiac arrest during the uh, the open heart surgery, right? So he dies during the open heart surgery. And um, the doctor comes in the next day, and he recovers, obviously. And it's amazing. And the guy goes to him, so, Doc, I heard what you said in there. The guy goes, what do you mean? So he's pretty amazed that an old guy like me has a heart this young, huh? That's good. And the doctor just turns white as a sheet because <laughs> this is a conversation that the doctor had you know, to the, uh, the the other surgeon that was there when they had this guy was dead on the table, and that's when this guy makes his comment, yeah. and this guy heard it, you know. Yeah. So my point is, if you're a cardiologist and that shit happens to you, you don't need to listen to some, you know, Yale neurologist who's never been around that situation, who's never seen that. You know, man, you know it in your bones that – Something real has happened here, and that's where these near-death experiences are coming from. The, the, they're from physicians who've 
the shit has happened to them on the table, and they've go, you know, I can't ignore this. Right. Well, it's it's troubling that this has been around for so long, and it's still it, they still won't deal with it. You know, it's frustrating. I think as a person, as a person who is interested in this yeah. stuff and knows about the research, it's frustrating because it's like you see the world is being held back by what could be a revolution in thought if if we would just. Uh, open our eyes and really look at this stuff with an open, you know, with a fair and open mind. That's all I ever ask for. I'm not someone who's like who's a true believer and wants people to to do stuff to to, to just be like, okay, you know, the experiences are right. It's like, no. How about we just have a fair and honest like examination of it? But they never totally. do that. Totally, because you know, it's not like uh, any of us know what this means. Mm. I, mean, I don't know what it means. I mean, I I, I don't think it means. <laughs> I don't think it, it, it bodes well for any particular religion. I mean, it totally contradicts Christian doctrine, totally contradicts Islam, Judaism. I mean, Buddhism might have a seat at the table, kind of, but not even, you know, strictly even some, you know, the Buddhists. So, you know, it's not like this this science that's emerging is totally in line with uh, religion. So yeah, where does it go? Exactly your question. Uh, we yeah. don't know, but our, we should be. We should have an extraordinary investigation to find out. That's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. But uh, it doesn't seem to be happening now. Well, or it does happen, and it's the folks who aren't getting the attention they deserve. Uh, I thought it was interesting in the book. You talk about telepathy. There's a whole chapter in there, and uh, uh, I just want you to flesh out a little bit the story of uh, you trying to fund this the study that Dr. Clive Wynn was going to do and, and what happened there and how did it fall apart? And uh, I want to give kudos to you for putting your money where your mouth is. I mean, it's one thing to sit back and be like, there needs to be a study, but it's another thing to, uh, like I said, step up to the plate and put some money into it. So kudos to you. But what happened? How come it didn't uh, go anywhere? Well, you know, one of the first um, people I contacted when I was doing my show was Dr. Rupert Sheldrick, Cambridge biologist who, as you said, wrote that wonderful forward to my book. But the guy is awesome, and he's done. What I really love about Sheldrick, and again, you know, Tim, we were talking about, you know, science and the essence of science and how it's lost to so many people, and uh, particularly the skeptic uh, crowd, you know. But what kind of gets me is when skeptics throw this kind of, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. They kind of got it backwards. They have it backwards in the way that you say. But the other thing that they have backwards is, <clears throat> what is an extraordinary claim? And how do we? How does science kind of even kickstart an investigation? You know, when does science get involved? And where Sheldrick always starts is by saying, you know, he gets involved with stuff where there's a natural history, a natural phenomena. So in this case, the one that you're talking about, what he found was that there were a lot of dog owners that were writing him letters because they knew he was interested in parapsychology and telepathy and ESP. And there were a lot of people writing him letters saying, you know what, my dog seems to know when I'm coming home. And so at first he kind of ignored it, you know, and said, okay, well, Hey, everybody's dog, you know, runs to the door when they're coming home. But people say, no, no, you don't get it. I mean, I'm a plumber, and I'm out, 
you know, all different hours. I'm coming home at all different hours. In 15 minutes before I get home, like clockwork, my wife tells me the dog goes to the home. That's how she knows that I'm coming home. I don't have a cell phone. I have any of this. This is like, you know, 20 years ago. The dog knows. So he starts compiling hundreds of these stories, some of them extraordinary. You know, a guy was in the Army, you know, and didn't tell anyone, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen those, yeah. The dog is, the dog, you know, runs three miles, you know, all this stuff. So he says, okay, here is a natural phenomenon, something that is being reported. It, sure, it may sound extraordinary to some people, but it's just something that's happening. Let's see what's happening. So he devised, you know, so he devised an experiment to test that. It's not, fortunately, it's not a hard experiment to test. You set up a video camera, you take the owner out. You don't let them drive their car so there's no noise there. You don't let them know when they're coming home. You just give them some kind of random signal. You call them on their cell phone. You say, okay, come home. And you simultaneously videotape the person as they're coming home in a taxi. And you tape the dog. And you videotape the dog. And then you time sync them together. And you see whether or not the dog really is able to tell when the owner's coming home. You know, if the owner is 10 miles away, it can't be sent. It can't be any of those things, you know. Be, oh, you know, and, and this is, you know, like I love the point you made before. Because one of the feedback, one of the pushback Sheldrick will get is like, well, you know, it's the regular pattern of the day. Or dogs have sense abilities a thousand times more than people. He's like, you know, damn, don't you think I thought of that in like the first five minutes right. of doing that? You know, I'm a Cambridge biologist, of course. I know, you know, how to control for the basic, simple stuff, and he he did. So he does this experiment, and he finds highly significant results. These dogs, especially, he tests this one dog, and this dog is off the charts, off the charts. This dog knows when their owner is coming home. The dog has somehow, in some way, we don't know, formed a telepathic link with the owner that somehow lets that dog know when that owner is coming home. So he wants to do this, so he does this test over and over, and then there's this huge controversy we won't get into, but this one debunker, this uh, psychologist, his name is Richard Wiseman in the UK, and he just does this extremely deceptive, and we exposed on the show how incredibly deceptive and disingenuous his uh, work in this project was. But like we were talking about before, he totally muddies the water in clouds, whether this has ever happened or whether it's true. Yeah, yeah. So, Make that a yeah, teaser for was, the book. Get the book, folks, just for that story because it's insane. This, this uh, saying how this it, whole thing goes down. But we'll 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 tease that one out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Tim, you know, to, to your point of, you know, it, it, it's fun to read and also just kind of makes your stomach going nuts, you know, because you kind of go, shit, you know, how bad is it really out there? You know, how much am I really being manipulated and deceived. Mm. So anyways, this is early on in my process. I go, well, shit, that shouldn't be hard. Let's replicate that, you know, get get a couple video cams, get some dogs, you know, we'll, we'll try and do this. So I did, and uh, I first did it myself, and it, it's a pain in the ass to do. I'm a lot harder than I ever thought, but I had some pretty amazing videos, a couple of them, and I posted them. They're out there still on YouTube, 
And I have some videotape of these dogs that do seem to show that, you know. But my work was just very preliminary. I didn't, I'm not a scientist. I can't publish my results. So as soon as I saw that, yeah, this seemed to be happening, I found this guy at the University of Florida, um, uh, Professor Wynn, as you uh, described, is, is his name, and a canine expert. And I said, hey, man, you ought to do this. Look, here's the whole thing. I'll fund it, you know, and let's get going. He was very skeptical. He was a skeptical guy. And, um, you know, it, the, the, the way it all kind of fell apart, I guess, is <laughs> – yeah, I can't really blame the guy per se, but it's back to what you were saying. It's just kind of the machinery, you know? It's like, so he took the money, he ran a couple trials, and then they totally bungled him. It wasn't his fault because I know it's a hard experiment to do, so I can't totally blame him. But he was like, hey, you know, we've got to move on. We've got to do something else, you know? And I'm like, wow, you know? I mean, you're going to do – I mean, the kind of experiment – you can imagine the kind of canine experiments that they do, but it's just – you know, just stuff that no one is interested in compared to a paradigm-changing, you know, yeah. Nobel Prize-worthy, you know, dogs are telepathic, you know, totally changes our fundamental assumptions about science. No, he blows that off to do his, you know, pack research, uh, you know, if the dead, uh, yeah, I don't know what it was, but... University of Florida, you can, you can look them up. It's all in there in the book, and, and you can see the research that he's doing. I'm sure it has merit and has value, but it's yeah. hard to believe that he passed on dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Some kind because, of, he's probably uh, doing some kind of in-depth study on canine feces or something like that. So, <laughs> stuff that's important to us, you know, everyday people. Right, right. Well, how did he, without getting too much into the logistics and the money of it, but, like, did you give this guy a decent amount of money, and did he just, like, abscond with, with the funding? Like, how does that even work? I've never funded it. No, no, it was, it was <laughs> nothing like that. And, uh, you know, my grant wasn't, wasn't a huge grant, but I was prepared to give him more. And um, really, I mean, what those guys like is they just like getting any kind of outside money because it really helps a lot. Most of the money they get is – Who doesn't? Yeah. So no, it was nothing. It was nothing nefarious, and I have nothing against the guy or, or anything like that. But it's just more of an insight into, you know, how this game is played. And, and again, it was early on in my process, so I, I didn't fully realize that. I, I, I and I don't. I hesitate to even say this, but you got to wonder how far he was really planning on going with this anyway. He yeah. knew this was going to be because it's a career killer for him, even if he was. Even if the whole thing was wildly successful, it's just a career killer. And that's the other, you know, it, it's the twist that none of us see coming in from the outside. And when you talk to the, to the skeptics, they'll say just the opposite. They'll go, hey, why wouldn't anyone would just be dying to do this if it was true? Because it's a Nobel Prize and this and that. Uh-uh, opposite of that. No one wants to do anything this unsettling. It completely destroys your career. Your career is best advanced by following the guy in front of you, supporting the troops, supporting the team, not breaking off and doing an end run on everybody. It just, again, it's a corporate mentality. Yeah. Really, that's how science works. They say this stuff about winning the Nobel Prize and everything. I mean, I'm not a big science buff, and I'm sure there are people that could, but it's like, 
I can't even think of maybe there's like a dozen famous groundbreaking Nobel Prize scientific stuff. So when I see them awarding a Nobel Prize for science, it's usually some really uh, mundane thing that you're like, "Geez, dude, why?" You know, I get that it's, I get that they now understand the chemistry of cells or whatever, but it's like I, I expect a little more. <laughs> Well, there's certainly a lot of big questions out there that are, you know, unanswered. So, yeah, I would I would tend to agree with you. But then I don't I don't I don't know enough at that level Mm, to really say, you know, I I just have I've tried to dig in as deeply as I can into a, a couple of topics. And on those topics, I feel pretty solid with the conclusions I've come to, because like I say, I I just try and talk to everybody. I mean, I talk to both sides and, and, you know, that's the other thing, you know, and I hope we talk about this because you mentioned in the email, you know. We still got an hour. Don't worry. We got plenty of time to talk. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, if you Google, you know, my name, Alex Sakaris, you know, one of the the entries that comes up pretty quickly is the Rational Wiki. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. So, we don't want to give those guys too much attention, but hey, right. they're they're playing the game hard, and they get they just get a ton of traffic and stuff like that. So this is the the arch skeptical atheist crowd who hmm. who really really hates me. <laughs> and I, I I guess I got a couple of reasons why they hate me, but it's not for any of the reasons they say. Like one of the things you'll see in, in Rational Wiki that you're going to ask me about is they say, hey, he does these interviews and then he doctors the interviews. You know, I've never done that. I've never, ever, ever changed someone's audio, you know, and edited to say something they didn't say. I've never changed their transcript to say something they didn't say. I've never had a guest. You know, there's never been a guest on my show that's ever accused me of that. Now, what I have done that does rile these guys sometime is first some people talk to me and because of the name of my show is skeptico which for me means something different but to them means hey this guy's probably on my team you know right right and then they find that i'm kind of more in the middle or maybe more on the other guy's team and sometimes that leads me to asking some pretty hard questions that they don't like uh, 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 so I I got a couple of stories that I just wanted to tell you because I think it's pretty funny. You know, I did um, I did this episode, episode 191 of Skeptico. I talked to this guy, Dr. Victor Stenger, well-known physicist, well-known atheist. You know, one of the, the first authors of the new atheism, you know, along with Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens. This guy right there with him, you know, arch-atheist. So we have a good talk, and I don't have a problem. Uh, there, there's some aspects to the atheist position that I totally support, you know, in terms of dogmatism in religion and the influence of religion and culture and how people like Obama have to, you know, bow down and say all this stuff that we all know he doesn't believe in about him being a Christian. <laughs> we yeah. know that's all bullshit, but he has to say it, you know, and why should you have to say it if you don't believe it? But so uh, Dr. Stenger and I are having this good discussion, and then he goes and he, he, he gets on his rant about parapsychology, and he, there's this other guy out there, this guy named Stanley Krippner, Dr. Stanley Krippner. Now, he is a, a real bigwig in psychology. He's 
uh, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of peer-reviewed papers, probably a hundred peer-reviewed papers he's published, dozens of books, expert on, you know, dreaming, psychology, but he also has this interest in parapsychology. Well, he slams him. He says he's a charlatan. He's really good enough. And so I kind of, I said, you, you, you think he's a charlatan? I mean, really? I mean, you don't, you don't think that, you know? I'm trying to give the guy an out. But he goes like, no, nah, you know, he's laying it on. So then we end the interview, and a day or two later, he thinks it over, and he says, hey, you know, let me take out that part about, you know, me saying that Stanley Krippner, a highly regarded psychologist, is a charlatan. I don't know. I'm not taking that out. Yeah. I'm going with the interview the way that it is. And he was just incensed, you know, I mean, because, again, these guys, everyone kisses their ass because they they have some kind of position, you know, and, and, and some kind of status. I, you know, I've had situations in the show where a guy will make so – one guy interviewed was like he said some things about the James Randi, you know, that famous skeptic. Yes. He said some kind of negative things about the James Randi research foundation and this guy was attached to that community you know so he he said hey you know i I really you know probably shouldn't have said that i went okay i'll take something like that out because it's you know kind of personal it's not really scientific but this when you attack another scientist or i had another guy nyu professor of psychology uh dr gary marcus you know just a ass a real ass. Again, and he's really outspoken. You know, he writes for Salon, writes for Huffington Post, really, you know, kind of puts it out there, all these things. Doesn't know shit about near-death experience. And I push him on it, and I said, you know, so what, what do you know? You know, what, who have you read? He'll say, you know, so I, and I really drill into that. And he hasn't read anything. And I knew that because I had Googled before. I'd, you know, Google searched all his books, Google searched all his writing. Here he is talking about consciousness. He's an expert on consciousness, Tim, right? Yeah. So if you're an expert on consciousness, near-death experience is a hot topic, whether you're forward against it, whatever you believe, to, to not say anything about it. So anyways, his response is, yeah, well, I haven't researched astrology either. So here he is. He's equating near-death experience, you know, published in the New England case studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine, hundreds of peer-reviewed, you know, papers. He's equating it with astrology. Well, after the interview, he says, you know, I don't even think we should publish that interview, you know, da da da. Oh, no way, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. going out there, and you're going to be exposed for, you know, that's your position. You're going to compare near-death experience science to astrology because. It doesn't conform to your worldview. So, the, the, well, I you know, notice too. A lot of times, these folks will just like pass the buck anywhere. They'll be like, "Well, I haven't really looked into it, but my friends, right. X, Y, and Z skeptics have." And, and right. like if, if someone in the paranormal community tried to get away with that, they would be like savaged oh. by the skeptics. You know, oh. they change yeah. the goalposts left and right, and then accuse yep. the other side of doing it. That's their problem. That's that's it exactly. And if anything, the people in the paranormal community. Have to have to be more rigid, more attuned to standards. The ones who are serious about things. Now that's something I want to talk to you about too. In the sense that it's like uh, this segues into the Ben Radford uh, saga, which I want you to recount for the for the folks listening, because it was absolutely maddening. I can't even imagine being the host of that show as it went down. Uh, I, I think I, I think I would have uh, told him to shut the f up a few times at, at some point because he just was coming off like a lunatic. Um, but it's like these skeptics, they go after low-hanging fruit, 
Right. Um, and they go after the stuff that's easily debunkable. And then they complain that the people in the paranormal community are all, uh, you know, window lickers and mouth breathers. And I've said to a skeptic before about this, it's like, listen, when you go after the low-hanging stories and the low-hanging fruit, you're attracting the low-hanging minds. And that's why you're dealing in this cesspool that you seem to think is the paranormal community. There's good researchers out there, and if you would stop just focusing on the stuff that's easy for you to explain and look at the stuff that's harder to explain, you'll find that the morons slowly go away because they can't handle it either. And then there's the credible people and the realistic people who are actually trying to figure it out. Well, you know, you know that from doing so many interviews with so many, you know, top-notch people, and, and I've heard many of those interviews. And, you know, it's, it's self-evident. You know, you talk to Richard Dolan. I mean, no one's going to – no one thinks Richard Dolan is a, is a dummy, you know, you you talk to him for uh, fifteen minutes, and you say, this guy this guy is smart. Mm. You know, and you don't have to agree with everything he says. Stan Friedman, you know, you don't have to agree with everything he says. Smart guy, Jacques Vallée. You're going to tell me he's a dummy? No, not a not by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, you're you're totally right. I mean, they're they're picking fights with the the weaklings. And it's the same in in my domain. You know, that's who they like to. That's why they like to argue with the the, the fundamentalist Christians and the Christian apologists and the you know baby Jesus empty tomb guys. I mean, that's that's where they like to stay, right in there. Hmm. That's sort of my rant about the low hanging fruit and the low hanging minds. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. My favorite correspondent who sends me the best information, Jeb Card, he listens to some of these uh, radio shows, and he listened to Banal of America. Is that how you pronounce it, Tim Banal? I don't. I never listened to it. But no uh, idea. But anyway. Um, so when you were talking about the show, you actually hadn't heard it yet. No, I didn't. You were relying on witness testimony. Uh, I guess you some, could say. Uh, I have a, a correspondent. He's a professor. And <laughs> You're listening to Banal of America Audio. So let's segue that to the Ben Radford story, because that's sort of what set me off on it. Because you say to him, how come you never look at any of the cases that are good? And then together you guys launch into this joint investigation of a, of a particularly compelling psychic detective case. And then it just goes completely off the rails. And I presume this was like live during a show, right? This wasn't just you guys hanging out and doing these things off quote-unquote off the record or off the air. This was like a show you did, and, and it just sounded like it went absolutely bonkers uh, over minutia, right? Yeah. So it was a joint investigation between this science writer, Ben Radford, who is a skeptic, you know, and uh, again, there's the crossover with the UFO field. I mean, here's somebody who's out of themselves as a skeptic, writes for skeptical publications, goes to all the skeptical things, but... He also writes for mainstream science, okay? So discover science, and, you know, he gets in science news every now and then. So he, he kind of cloaks himself in this idea of legitimate science. Anyways, a likable guy. I mean, <laughs> at least he was before we had this investigation. And we spent a lot of time together, months, uh, you know, several the, – the investigation took several months, mm -hmm. and we had many, many calls together. And as you alluded to, what we decided to investigate was a psychic detective case. So everyone's seen these on TV where a psychic helps a detective. Usually, you know, it's a kidnapping, a missing person, but usually it's a murder 
and and that's what this was is a serial murder investigation in New Jersey and the psychic was Nancy Weber and there were these two detectives who it's also important to note that these two detectives didn't even know each other before the case so these detectives came together and they said wow you know this woman blew us away at what she was able to tell us and it was amazing and as the investigation turns out again for political cop reasons these guys were hot on the trail of doing it and then got like you know infighting over this high profile case this other group you know kind of pushed them out of the way and, and they didn't do the investigation but they stayed on it and eventually this guy is apprehended and when they're at, when the guy is apprehended then it was even more clear how accurate the psychic was. So this is a case where you can't say that the psychic, quote-unquote, solved the case, although that is a whole other story, which is just talk about a mind-blowing kind of thing. I'm, yeah, yeah, that's a whole other getting, thing. That just, that, yeah. just, you know, that just causes too many other trouble, troubles in, in, <laughs> right. in, in this story, so, but go on. So you have this the case as it's resolved, what the medium, what the psychic uh, medium, or you can't say medium, what the psychic gave the police was incredibly accurate. For example, some of the information that the psychic gave the medium was to say, er, I'm stumbling over my words here. It's okay. What the psychic gave the detectives said, hey, this guy is from the local area. He lives in the hollow, which was a particular little area in New Jersey, where it's from. He says, I, the, the, I smell like a gas station, you know, is somehow associated with a gas station. His brother owned a gas station. His last name begins with a K and ends with an itch. I get a, like a kitchen that's like a Polish kind of thing. Then she says, hey, this guy was from here, but he went to Florida. He was convicted of murder. Oh, my God, they let him out. Somehow he was released from prison in Florida wrongfully, and he came back up, and this is the guy you're looking for. She does some other amazing things, like she says, she tells him that this guy was pulled over for a traffic ticket. And he goes, she goes, you have his name. He's, it's in your files because he was, he was pulled over for this traffic ticket. And the officer who gave him the ticket, his name is, and she gets you know, enough of the name where the guy goes, was it this? And she goes, yeah, that's got to be it. So she gives them all this amazing information, right? Mm -hmm. All is corroborated. You know, Tim, I don't have a lot of experience with police detectives, in particular homicide detectives. No? But I don't... I don't think you can bullshit those guys very easily. You know, you got a guy who's a captain who's yeah. been there for 20 years, who's done hundreds of these things. You know, you don't just pop in there like Mary Poppins and say, oh, I see a vision of this. These people are not <laughs> bullshitted. Right. So for the, the, the testimony of these cops to say, yeah, she did all this stuff and it was amazing was pretty convincing for me. But in my investigation with Ben Radford, we reviewed the whole thing. I interviewed both Lieutenant Hughes and Captain Moore, and I have transcripts of those interviews. I have the recordings of those interviews. They're on the Skeptico website still. Anyone can go listen to them. Ben interviewed those guys. Now, he doesn't have transcripts. He doesn't have recordings, but that's okay. 
Then Ben got together with me. Stop. Hold on now. Let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. That's just a case example right there of, you know, you you are extra studious and fastidious about getting the information right, and he just doesn't give a fuck. Or he has them and he won't produce them because they show that he's wrong about something. Well, and that's kind of what I suspect. Okay. I'll put the words in in your mouth, but that right there, it's like the the standards of of investigation right there, the, you know, he's lazy and you're you're fastidious. If he doesn't have that information, you know, and this isn't 1960, you know, he interviewed him at the same time you did. He just couldn't be bothered to get the transcripts and the recordings, even though you did, even though this was like a challenge of sorts. So... That's that's right there an indictment on this guy. But continue, please. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to say that. No, I'm, I'm glad you did, because Tim, that's the point. Like, and you've done enough of these <clears throat> investigations uh, on your own, because you know when you talk to and you interview people, you know you're drilling into them and and and, and asking tough questions. Well. So that's what I'm doing with both these detectives and then with Ben. So I get on the phone with Ben after I've done my interviews, and he says, okay, you know, I found this, uh, I found this discrepancy. Captain Moore, he didn't say that the, the, whoever the perpetrator was was down in Florida and was released. He said that the psychic said he, she, he went to the south and then he was released. Now, now, first of all, why someone, why someone, given this just kind of avalanche of information, would kind of pick out that distinction between whether she said the South or whether she said Florida is kind of mind-blowing. Right. But, That's one detail amongst, let's say, we don't know the total number of like actual uh, yeah. discernible details, but let's say 50 details. If she gave 50 it's details right. about the case, it's one out of 50. Right. And it's not even a significant one. I mean, most people would say, well, you know, the South, Florida, I mean, you know, okay. But he's like, no, you know, she said Florida and the cops disagree with her. Well, so take out the absurdity of that. I said, well, no, that just isn't true. I, I have the interview. I'm looking, I'm reading the transcript right here. I paid to get these transcripts done. Captain Jim Moore said Florida. And, and he was insisting. He was no. I have it right here in my notes. You know, I'm an investigative reporter. I have it in my notes. I said, well, we'll call him up. We'll call him up right now. So we do a conference call. And again, this is both in the book. The audio is on my website, and the transcripts are on my website. We call up Captain Jim Moore, and man, he really lit into Ben. <laughs> it was kind of fun. He goes, No, I did not tell you that. I said Florida. I always said Florida. That's what I said, you know. So, you know, Ben then backs into this position. He goes, okay. And again, remember, this is, this is Florida versus the South. This right. is what this is kind of reduced down to now, whether, whether the psychic said Florida or whether the psychic said the South. Anyway, so he says, okay, Lieutenant Hughes. Lieutenant Hughes is the one who told – now I'm remembering. Lieutenant Hughes is the one who told me the South. Oh, my God. He should be embarrassed, but go on. So we call – I go, great, we'll call him up. Another conference call. Now, this detective from the New Jersey State Police is on the phone with me, and, and Ben is on the phone, three-way conference call. And I go, okay, I'm going to turn over to Ben. He has some inconsistencies in your story. And this guy says, well, I think I said Florida. He says, if I said this – he says, if I use the generic term, maybe, you know, but I do remember Florida. So now – 
this guy is so <laughs> he said, you know, he's a Jersey cop. He said, okay, you know, maybe I said the South, but I remember Florida, you know, if I threw the South in there, whatever. Again, it's kind of a more realistic kind of thing. Right. So the, 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 the upshot of all this, it's a long kind of hilarious story, but the, the really sad part is to this day, a- after that interview, Ben still went and published a book, and he used this as an example of how he debunked a psychic detective case. And he still to this day says that the police detectives contradicted the psychic. And he even said this, which is just such a a total distortion of the truth that it really does kind of hurt my stomach. He says, well, you can either believe the cops or you can believe the psychic. (laughs) And, of course, the thing is, the cops are in total agreement with the psychic, have always supported Nancy Weber, have always supported her story, and Ben has just done a complete twist of the truth to suit, you know, suit himself. his purposes and his audience. Suit himself, yeah. Well, you know, it's like I said, the guy should be embarrassed. I can't believe. Well, did you call him out on this afterwards? I mean, has anybody called oh, yeah. him out in the ensuing years or whatever since this all went down? I mean, that's a pretty yeah, glaring, yeah. glaring, a galling act, really. Has anyone, what's his, what's, his, what's his response to this? You know, just, you've probably had some of these conversations too, but when you, you, the the facts don't matter. You know, the facts don't matter, and he he just sticks to his story. All right. Even though anyone can go right now to Skepsco.com and listen to the whole thing, and no reasonable person will just – you know, like you you, kind of mentioned earlier, and I I said it really was a turning point for me in in Skeptico because I realized – that there just are some people out there that are just stuck and that the evidence really isn't going to matter. Because, I mean, anyone who goes through this and listens to the, you know, we had, shoot, five or six hours on there. You listen to those five or six hours. If you listen to those five or six hours and you believe you agree with Ben, I, I you know, I, we probably aren't going to have much of a conversation because there's <laughs> nothing to talk about. You know, there's just... But there are some people that are just fundamentalists who are just afraid of any kind of change in their belief system, and you know they just wind up in some pretty. You've seen that, right? I mean, you've seen that in the UFOs. It's the swamp gas thing all over. Oh yeah, they're just they just they're just ardent skeptics, you know. They're just. Uh, but that's just that's like I said, that's galling. I can't believe this guy would do that. And uh, you know, I know people who hold him up in high regard. People have recommended to have him on the show. People who are friends with me, I, I, don't, I can't imagine how I'd ever have this guy on the show. I'd have to lead have off. Him on the show, we'll do a debate. Have him and I on the show. <laughs> I'd have to lead off with with this whole uh, fiasco. Um, well, what's that raises? You actually hit the D word there. I was going to ask you about because um, part of as I'm reading the book, I keep like waiting for this like climactic moment on your program where there's going to be like a debate because you have guests on, uh, you know, sort of non-believers for lack of a, for serious lack of a better term, but uh, skeptics, I guess, you know. Skeptics, and then you have the experts uh, on, and then you sort of have this sort of like point counterpoint. Have you ever done or thought about doing sort of a debate show where these people could actually talk to each other, um, you know, instead of you having to be like, well, I had Doctor X, Y, and Z on last week, and and she said that I, uh, you know, all dogs, uh, you know, have to go to the bathroom at a certain time, so they go, you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> what's your response to that? And then the person has to explain it. 
Um, have you ever just had them on together to try and hash this out? You, you know, I, I, I did explore that at, at various times over the years. But what I've found is, at least personally, I think it works better kind of single-threading it, you know, because uh, so many of these uh, quote-unquote debates, they just don't go – they turn into these kind of staged, predictable kind of events. Huh. And it, it, it also is just a nightmare, you can probably relate, but scheduling-wise, you know, it's hard to get these people – uh, let alone, you know, getting one of them, but then getting a, a couple of them. So uh, I've had better luck with doing this kind of threading where, you know, I'll talk to one person and then I'll say, okay, this person said this, how do you respond? And fitting that into kind of a broader kind of discussion. So that's just been a, a kind of a personal style yeah. thing that's kind of worked better for me. All right, fair enough. Yeah, I figured I'd ask, though, because, I mean, people have suggested I do a debate on the show before. You just did. But... uh I don't know. I never really. There's a lot of like what you said, the logistics of it, and then also it's like you got to right, find the right mix, and yeah, you know, it's kind of. Uh, I'd rather have two sort of people who who I, I actually um, respect debate each other about an issue. So I, I don't. I agree. I don't think we'll be having uh, Ben Radford on to debate anything. Um, so to jump from there, I wanted to just sort of pontificate a little bit about the the healing part of the book because I thought that was interesting because you know I'm a capitalist at heart even though <laughs> I barely promote my show or make any money off of it but I do enjoy uh, profiting from things and a healing uh, chapter I thought was interesting This because to me it was like you, you'd, you'd think that there would be sort of like this capitalist interest uh, in all that in the sense where it's like if this Bengstam method is so good you know, why don't I go learn it and then just get a kiosk at my mall and heal tons of people and then word by then will spread like wildfire because I've just healed like eight people of cancer, uh, you know, down at the mall. Um, you know, and the next thing you know, people are learning the Begster method instead of going to medical school. Like, why hasn't this taken off like wildfire if it's if it's actually so good? You know, Tim, I... <laughs> it's funny you say that because I'm totally a capitalist uh, and I've had that exact same thought you know I, I i i'm not in a position to where i have to do that you know but i would definitely do that <laughs> i would definitely freaking do that you know the 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 story you're alluding to is i have not done i i really only did one investigation on, on healing and it was this interview i did with this dr William Bankston, who is a sociologist, and uh, I forget the name of the university. It's in, I think it's in New York, or it's in the East Coast. But um, Bankston, really interesting guy, highly regarded guy. He's uh, the past president and maybe the current president of the uh, Society for Scientific Investigation, which is really, really an interesting group with some really uh, qualified, top-notch people, and they put out a great journal and uh, so he's highly respected by not only people within the sociology community, but uh, the broader uh, science community as well. And he's a guy that kind of stumbled into this investigation of healing because he's he is uh, I, I really like the guy, and he's he is the ultimate scientist, you know. So 
he ran into this guy who said that he was a healer, you know, just kind of, I forget what, but it was like a social thing. Like he met the guy at the pool, you know, cause he was a big swimmer and this and that. And this guy starts talking, you know, and you can imagine the guy says, yeah, well, you know, I did this thing. He goes, really? You know, okay, well, let's see, you know? So he starts devising experiments for this guy, just little ad hoc experiments. Cause he's curious. Some guy says he can heal people. He says, okay, let's see it. Well, it turns into kind of a pretty serious research effort on the part of Bankston because this guy who's the healer continues to blow his mind at what he's able to do. Hmm. And they wind up doing this experiment. And this experiment was done, and I may get this wrong, but again, Bankston has published all this, so you can check me out on this. If it wasn't NYU, it was a New York University. But Bankston had a, a, a new guy, colleague, who was studying cancer. And he went to this guy and he said, look, I got this guy and he's blowing me away with this healing stuff. What could we devise? If I wanted to do an airtight experiment with the proper controls to prove that this guy can really do his thing, what should I do? And the guy from NYU says, hey, man, I got it. It's these mice. He goes, I know this sounds horrible, but we experiment on these mice. We inject them with a certain cancer, and within 27 days, these mice die, every one of them. I mean, they're bred to all be the same, identical, cloned, and, you know, that's it. And that's how we test them. That's how you would want to test them. So he puts together this experiment, and he tests these mice, these mice in this cage are given cancer. His healer backs out at the last minute. Yeah. But Bankston steps in there and does the healing procedure himself, puts his hands over the cage. He has a protocol that he goes through. And as he describes it, these mice start developing these ulcers that you can see, cancerous ulcers. And Bankston is like, oh, my God, this is already a horrible experiment. We've given these mice cancer, and I understand that people are uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with it, but that's how we do medical research. Anyways, he's now extra uncomfortable because these mice are really looking bad. But the other guy says, hey, you're into this. You need to proceed with the experiment, and just let's see where this thing goes. A few days in, he does the healing. The ulcers burst. The cancer is gone in these mice. These mice are cured. He says, I, he, he says, I used to say that the mice were in remission, and I was corrected and told that these mice were cured. The mice live out their natural life of two to three years. First time the NYU professor tells him that this is the first time that he is aware in medical history that these mice, after being injected with cancer, have lived this long. And this guy has done it with energy healing. So, an amazing story from, and not just a story. The guy has published his research. He's replicated his research. He's had different people do the research. He's not hiding. You can find him. You can find his interview on my website. You can find his book. You can find him. Yeah. This is not super secret stuff. But you would think it is because no one's heard of it. But to your point, I tell you, I got to laugh. I've thought the same thing. I thought, you know what? 
if the situation was different, I'd go open up a freaking clinic and I'd figure out some kind of value proposition, you know. Hey, it's $100,000 if we cure it. It's zero if we don't, you know. Come on in. You know? Yeah, man. Hey, get the, get find me the best three mediums and we'll open up a kiosk. I'll do it. <laughs> you won't have to do anything, dude. I'll run it for you. Yeah, I, man. And then we'll change the world, you know. Yeah, I, I, you know, and, 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 the, and you know, it would do both. You know, there, there's no reason you couldn't make a lot of money and change the world at the at the same time. Plus, again, you know, if we if we if you did start making a lot of money, that would change the that would quickly change the perspective of the of the scientific and mainstream community. Then they'd be like, oh well, we got to patent this and and get <laughs> get it out of get it out of their hands. And you know, it's it's a strange strange world that we live in. Because I'll tell you another little the the follow up to the Bankston story is. I went and, and had a little bit of a medical dilemma myself, and I sought out because I'd always told myself, I am on that. This Bankston thing kind of blew me away, but then it was, you know, next week it was the next show, and I was on to my next thing. You know, I, I hear you, man. But, I get through that, yeah. <laughs> but I always kept in the back of my mind that, you know, if I ever got, if I ever got cancer, or if I ever had a serious, I would damn well do this, you know, mm. and. That situation did play out, not with cancer, but with this other condition I had that I described in the book. And uh, I did find a, a healer that was trained at the Bankston Method, and we did do it, and um, it was pretty amazing. I can't say that you know uh, the, that it was totally responsible. I, I'm better. I can't say it's totally because of that, because you know I was doing everything I could to get better. You know, yeah. Um, so I was doing dietary changes and supplements and all this other stuff. Because shit, I didn't. I wasn't. <laughs> in this case, I wasn't worried about you know being that guinea pig. But the one thing I, I, I did want to say is, in that sense, I was. You know, like I told this healer, I said, "Do I have to believe in this?" And she's like, "Well, you know, believe that." Because I don't want to have to believe in this. I'm not going to believe in this. I'm going to be that mouse in that cage like Bengston was healing, right? Yeah. That mouse, they didn't have to visualize, do any visualization exercises or anything like that. They were just a mouse running right. around yeah. with cancer, and that's how I want to be. And so, but my point is that, you know, as these things, so Bengston is big into you don't have to believe in any of this stuff. It just happens. It just works. But the way that the healers take it, they take it, and they don't always take it in that way. They start mixing in with a lot of new age and spiritual and other stuff that I, I, I'm not saying that some of that might not be true. But, you know, the scientist guy, Bankston, said, well, I'm not into that. I'm just into, you know, it somehow works. Right. Yeah. Well, I wonder, though. That just makes me wonder more, too. It's He's trained people on all this stuff. It just seems like it should be... You know, it should be working better, maybe, or maybe there's not enough healers, or maybe not enough people are going because you would not think. Enough, that, you, know, you know, I, I just think you would just you think. Know, if I, the, I live out here in, in Southern California, yeah. and there's a ton of energy healers out here. And but the other thing I think is, I think different people have different skills. But I tell you, anyone who's who's listening to this who has a serious medical condition, well, it, it, you know, I, I would just be open to exploring it on your own. You know, and exploring Bill Bankston or exploring whatever it is, but you know why you would not make yourself uh, available to the other options that are out there. In my experience, I think it'd be really, really smart to to look at. That just seems clear to me. 
Now, well, the see, economics the problem with of that, it, like you and I are saying about opening up our kiosk and stuff, you know, I don't know. I, I like I say, it's intriguing to me. But what I know is anyone who has a medical condition that you know might be might benefit from this, you're crazy not to be open to open to it because there are people who get better from energy healing. That's yeah, my experience. Well, see, the problem is that it involves death and everything in life and stuff. So it's like people. You don't really get a second chance. You can't do a do-over. You know what I mean? Right. So people are right. unwilling to to take that risk in a sense. Um, you know, but who knows? Obviously, uh, people should just do their own thing when it comes to this healing. I don't recommend anything because I don't want some lunatic, <laughs> you know, right. blaming me for something. Because uh, I don't you know, know what I would what? do in that situation, to be honest with you, because uh, I talk a good game, but if I went to the doctor and they, like, said, uh, you have cancer tomorrow, I'd be like, well, I want the most cutting-edge treatment science can provide, you know? Right. But, <laughs> so I may be an idiot like that. I don't know, you know? So don't take well, my word you know, for it, folks. I mean, and, 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 and BOA is a testament to this, and I hope Skeptico is a testament to this, is that, you know, knowledge is power. And knowledge is transformational. So, you know, just opening yourself up to what's out there, sucking up the knowledge, and then you can make any damn decision you want. You know, you can go chemo, you can do whatever you want, but inform yourself first. You know, get the best information into your head, follow the data as best you can, and then make that decision. Don't let your pre-existing beliefs, you know, kind of, Tell you that you know you know. I, I just had a guy on my forum the other day, and he seems like a really nice guy, but he's kind of new to the forum. <clears throat> and uh, he was listening to this show that I had done with uh, Rick Archer, this guy who has a show called Buddha at the Gas Pump that I really like. Buddha at the Gas Pump. He talks to all these people that have gone through this spiritual enlightenment, like for meditation or whatever. But yeah. it's a very interesting show. All these variety of people. So at one point in the show. Um, Rick and I are talking about UFOs, and I say, you know, hey, you know, one thing I think we've got to throw in the mix here is in this extended consciousness, whether it's with psychedelics or near-death experience or mediums, over and over again, these people are encountering stuff that sounds a lot like what people in the UFO are encountering. Yeah. Now, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not drawing any firm conclusions. I'm just saying there seems to be some connection there. So Rick and I have this conversation and, and Rick says that Rick says interestingly enough, he says, hey, in the in the like primarily the the, the traditions that he's talking to for people who are not familiar with it, you could kind of lump them into Buddhism. They're not all Buddhists, you know, he talks to Christian mystics, but people have had these incredible spiritual awakenings, right? Mm -hmm. And so he says, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people that have had these incredible spiritual awakenings and they've they've encountered, you know, these beings that start looking and talking and saying, you know, a lot of the stuff that is consistent with what abductees are reporting or what people in the UFO community are report, reporting, right? So he's just saying that, that that's part of, the, part of the mix there, you know, without drawing any firm conclusions. Back to the guy in the, on our forum, he says, man, you know, I love this show, Alex. I love what you're doing, but you guys are nuts. 
you know, this UF, you're taking seriously this idea of UFOs? I got to stop listening to the show, you know, because you guys are legitimate nuts and crazy, you know. Oh, man, what a loser. Don't, yeah, don't stop listening. Just, yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, but isn't that the way it is, you know, for all of us? I bet you anything, we, we though, have... he still listens. That's the thing. I bet you, I bet you he's listening now. Well, <laughs> I, I hope he is. I, I hope he is because, you know, I don't know. What's it been like for, for how much have you changed over the years, BOA? Oh, man. I was like a wide-eyed, uh, hopeful believer in a sense uh, when I started all this. I was kind of hoping that this was all going to uh, break open. You know, I thought my generation was going to be the one to kind of break it open. I was, uh, uh, well, I was like in my mid-20s when I got into really started becoming a producer in the, of content, let's say. So and that was after like three years of being interested in it in the first place. So, how, how, What was your interest like when you first began? I'm sure you've you've covered this on the show, but I was kind of – scouring your show, trying to figure out some of this early history. I mean, I'm sure at, at some point you were you, you you thought this UFO stuff was crazy, but then you became a believer, and then you became a kind of, I don't want to say a skeptic, but just kind of an, uh, uh, questioning some of the the party line in terms of the UFO. But what about way back? I mean, oh, like, what was Well, it? I guess not. Like when I first started, I was, uh, you know, first I never gave it any thought. Then I thought, then I came to the conclusion that there was something to this UFO mystery. Then I sort of launched the show. Um, and at the time, the wide-eyed believer part was that they were close to figuring it out and everything. Uh, right. And then as time went on, I came to the realization that they're no closer to figuring it out than they were decades ago. Right. Um, and then it's all a big show. The UFO right. research field is a big show. Right. Um, and that's kind, of, that's kind of the conclusion I came to. There's still a UFO mystery, but there's a whole different world that's the UFO research community that almost has nothing to do with the actual UFO mystery. It just promulgates the UFO right. mystery. So, you know, have me on and, the skeptical. I'll be happy to talk about all this stuff. You know, break from uh-huh. break from tradition and have a... <laughs> Have a have a crazy ass on, and uh, I'll be happy to delve into all this. But yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a it's a scientific and sociological problem uh, wrapped up in a, in and of itself. So you know, and I still believe there's something to the UFO phenomenon, but I'm not any closer to knowing what it is than when I did BOA episode one. So mm-hmm. you know, I've just become more disillusioned and, uh, but also more driven to sort of figure out the right questions to ask which is where I sort of come down on American ufology, where it's like they're not really asking the right questions, they're not introducing the right ideas or the right areas to explore. Some people are, but it's a fear, they're few and far between. The rest seem to be want to rehash old cases, um, you know, or so, or demand that the government tell us what's going on <laughs> without, do, and, without and showing their work, as I say. And, and how much of that is, as you were alluding to before, just kind of the... Uh, kind of basic social kind of stuff the way that we all kind of are and and what percent of it do you think is somehow some co-opting of the of the process by people who have a different agenda oh like a conspiracy yeah oh i have no idea i mean i I don't know it's it's kind of like social it's really more just sociological i mean they can't the the folks who are trying who are quote-unquote trying to figure it out can't figure it out they, they, I think, and they, the field, without knowing it, realized that it couldn't figure it out a long time ago, and now it's kind of like uh, chasing its tail uh-huh. to try it because it has to keep feeding the <laughs> the, uh-huh. Uh-huh. the machine of ufology, 
So it's right. like, here's let's take a, let's take the fifth look at Rendlesham. It's like, no, let's right. fucking not, because you know, it's uh, it's not working. But uh, I think like uh, to talk about to tie this into what uh, to to your stuff. It's um, you know, I have here in the notes. Uh, I think it's 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 sort of like the boiled frog aspect because uh, this is part here at the end about changing science. When is science, science going to change? Is science at a tipping point? Someone else pointed out earlier in the book uh, or in the chat room here. Jim Lattica said, uh, you know that that we talk about science being afraid of death. Well, maybe. Maybe science is afraid of death because death is the great equalizer of scientific ideas. And as the uh, as these people who don't who, who whose minds are closed to the strange and unusual, as they die off, uh, more younger people will come along and maybe be more open to it. I've advocated that that's a generational thing that maybe the UFO uh, phenomenon will benefit from. Maybe the whole realm of the paranormal will benefit from these people who have been conditioned uh, since. You know, these baby boomers and Gen Xers and stuff who have been conditioned throughout their lives that this is all bullshit. As they die off and these millennials and whatnot come along, they're going to be the ones who are like, no, man, there's more to it, you know. And, po- and you and me, Alex, you know, we're screwed because, you know, I'm 35. By the time this thing, by the time the frog boils, I'm going to be barely, barely hobbling around. And I, I hate to say it, man, but I don't know if you're even going to be here. So well, that's, that's kind you know, of that, that's another that's an area where I'm I'm kind of skeptical like you are, too, you know, because whenever I hear that and, and there's the crossover with the UFO community, you know, it's like science at the tipping point is like the tagline for my show. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of come back to bite me in the ass because I don't believe science is at any freaking tipping point. It ain't tipping nowhere. And the 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 status quo has not begun to fight. And, you know. So we went through a scientific revolution back in the, the early 1900s where there was spiritualism, there was all this interest in consciousness and, um, you know, the leading scientists in the world were very much more open than they are now. So, you know, this this myth of this straight line of progress, I think, is is kind of, you know, that and and I, I that's one thing I'm skeptical of in the UFO community and because I have investigated a, a little bit and have some interviews on there with, you know I interviewed uh, Stan Friedman but I also interviewed David Jacobs you know who really a lot of people hate you know but I, I interviewed yeah, he has him a lot of and I interviewed associated with his work uh, nowadays but uh, we won't delve into that right now the listeners of this show know all about it so go on well we could because that's what I I, I got right in the right in the middle of that one. And I knew the problems with uh, Jacob's work and some of the accusations. But I kind of pitted him against uh, Mary Rodwell, who is um, – do you know Mary Rodwell in Australia? Uh, are you thinking I'm a Woods, or is that a different person? Um, no. So Mary Rodwell uh, also does regression therapy with people who believe they've had an abduct, abductee experience. And I also interviewed uh, a Dr. Janet Colley who is a licensed uh, psychiatrist and is part of the, you know, the whole John Mack thing, right? Yes. <clears throat> so it was John Mack and then uh, John Mack versus kind of David Jacobs, and then John Mack died. And then, you know, some people have followed in the John Mack footsteps. And I'd say Janet Colley, Dr. Janet Colley, definitely falls into that camp. And Mary Rodwell kind of does too. So, you know, my point in interviewing uh, Jacobs and Rodwell was, you know, David Jacobs 
no matter what you think of his techniques and part of the problems with, you know, hypnotic uh, regression. Uh, and we could get into that. You know, we've got a few minutes left. It might be an interesting topic to talk about because it, so here's my methodology, Jim. I mean, I, it's fun talking to you, you know, because we, we do share so many of the same experiences that other people won't be able to really totally relate to this. But yeah. doing these shows, preparing for these shows, doing the interviews, doing the research, you know, it's exciting, man. And you get, you you know, you get jazzed up before and like when we were talking, you were saying, hey, you read the book and then you're like, I want to talk to him right now. Yeah, yeah. I have to, I have to do that all the time. I'm like, no, I'm not looking at that stuff because, you know, if like if I'm interviewing, uh, I just interviewed Michael Shermer a couple weeks ago, the famous uh, skeptic, you know, but I had to hold off until just a few days before to really dig into his stuff or I knew it was just driving me crazy. You know, if yeah, I did yeah. it like a week before, I'd be like. So I think you and I going through that experience, you can kind of relate to some of this, but my starting point with the David Jacobs and the abduction uh, research that is highly controversial because it uses hypnotic regression was to start with hypnosis and say, okay, all these people are up in arms about hypnotic regression and the information you get is not reliable and all this. Like, okay, well, is hypnosis reliable? Does hypnosis even work? And it's like, <clears throat> so I interviewed this guy in uh, in Montreal, this uh, practicing hypnotherapist, um, uh, really nice guy. He's got some really impressive uh, YouTube videos. That's kind of how I found him. But he's a clinical hypnotherapist. You know, you want to quit smoking or you want to lose weight or you know, you're going to the doctor and you're afraid of going into the doctor, you know, yeah. you'd go see this guy. Well, the first thing when you look into that research, the solid science, is that hypnosis is rock solid. I mean, it's used in hospitals all over the world, and it works, you know. I mean, it, it, it works even in this, like we started out this whole show a couple hours ago talking about consciousness. And we said, hey, near-death experience blows the doors off of consciousness. Well, frickin' hypnosis blows the doors off of mind equals brain consciousness idiocy that we have. <clears throat> like at Harvard, they did this. Uh, they did this experiment with hypnosis. There's a little bit. I don't know if we'll ever get back to the Mary Rodwell story. We can save it for another time. It's all time. right. It's all right. We can go longer after the after the uh, after the live show says good night. So uh, if you if you're comfortable going a little bit more, we can go a little bit more because I only have a few more notes anyway. Great, that'd be great. All right, so uh, I got to tell you this research because it's really fascinating. They 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 hypnotized these people, and they told them that they were colorblind. Okay, so when you're colorblind, little cones inside your eyes don't work. They work differently, right? And I don't even know the details of that, but I know that much. So then they did an fMRI. You know, they did brain imaging on these people. And they found that, in fact, once they were hypnotized, even though they were able to see color, once they were hypnotically suggested, given that suggestion that they were colorblind, their their actual physical eye worked differently as if they really were colorblind. Okay? Yeah. So they had the ability to 
do that. Now, that doesn't sound that astounding. They'll go, oh, yeah, well, that doesn't mean shit. Well, actually, it does mean shit. It means a lot of shit. It means that your consciousness, that thought that was suggested, was able to change something physical. That is not mind equals brain. That is something different, something else. That little voice inside your head, which is supposed to be an illusion, is not an illusion. It changed the way that your brain works. And there's some other case studies we could give you that are even more dramatic, and, and we could talk about those later. Huh, yeah. but, so even hypnosis, and that's more controversial. That's why we talk about near-death experience, because near-death experience, it's in your face. It's, it, you just can't get past the fact that the guy's brain wasn't there, and he had this unbelievable experience that brains aren't supposed to do. But even something as simple as hypnosis. But that was my starting point to say hypnosis actually works. And then if you look for hypnosis and, meta and memory recovery, it works. It's been proven to work by the best methods that we have. People are able to remember things that they can't otherwise remember, and those things are later substantiated in the studies they've done as being accurate. So that is really the launching point. So when, it kind of pisses me off when people say, you know, I'm not a, a David Jacobs supporter. I'm more of a Mary Rodwell supporter. I'm more of a Janet Colley supporter, a John Mack supporter. But that's like picking uh, horses that are at least in the same race. Yeah. When people say nautic regression should not be trusted, it's not reliable, I say bullshit. The medical evidence suggests otherwise. The medical evidence suggests that hypnosis does allow people to remember stuff that they weren't able to remember. That's a medical fact. Now, whether it was administered properly, whether it was done, whether the best control conditions, whether the information they got was accurate, all those things are open for debate. Right. But you can't throw out the whole frickin' thing just because you, you, you got this idea now that uh, – Hypnotic regression is is kind of this blanket false thing that's it doesn't work like that, and the best medical evidence suggests the exact opposite of that. Hmm. I see what you're saying. I agree with you there. It's it's, it's a yeah. We should not entirely dismiss the technique necessarily, the instrument by which uh, it's used, but it's fair to uh, to to question the information we get. Yeah. Yeah. And. Yeah, and no, it, it just exactly kind of puts you, you in a different position, you know. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure even how we got off on that tangent, <laughs> but it's all good. Uh, well, for the live audience, we'll sort of say goodbye to the live audience in about uh, a couple minutes here. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about, you know, what's next for you. Uh, what do you have coming up uh, at Skeptico? Folks can find out more about that at Skeptico.com, of course, uh, uh, with a K, Skeptico with a K. Um, but, you know, what's what's cooking with Skeptico? You just got this book out. What's been the reaction, first of all, to the book, and uh, what do you have coming up? The reaction's been great, and it's been another learning experience, you know. It, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I wrote the book partially because I wanted to reach out, and I wanted to talk to more people than just my community. I love my community, but I love, you know, we never would have made this connection, you and I, if I didn't have this book, probably. So that's the book is working wonders in that way, because I think there's a lot of, you know, I, I do want to, I, I think the UFO uh, enigma, if you will, is 
critical to the stuff that I'm looking at in some way that I don't understand. So I want to understand it better, and I want to connect with people like you and, and find out more about that. And I think it's also there's this spiritual angle, like I told you, like my buddy boot at the gas pump. I think that plays into it. I think the parasite. So I think a lot of these things fit together, and that's what I hope to do uh, with the book and going forward and, and kind of stitching together some of these communities. The other thing, you know, the book has is led to is I, I I do kind of like mixing it up, you know. So I have a whole round of interviews coming up with some pretty prominent atheists and skeptics. Michael Shermer, I mentioned, Lawrence Krauss, you know, who's, uh, yeah. it just did this big movie with uh, Richard Dawkins, The Unbelievers, Hardcore Atheists. I like talking to those guys, you know, and uh, we, we go at it pretty hard, but it's a fun fun dialogue, and there isn't enough of that out there, you know. There's so much stuff on the, on the Internet, and there's so many podcasts, but I don't know, there's not enough kind of... I don't know, more, you know, edgy confrontational stuff, and I don't seek that out, but I, I don't shy away from it. So I, I kind of like to offer that up. So that's what's coming up. Right, right. Well, I do like how it seems like, just, just based on reading the book uh, and the transcripts from the show, it does seem like your confrontational style at least comes from a good place, you know. You're not just bringing people on to uh, to bash them or laugh at them, you know, because uh, that's sort of the other side of it. That's the other part of the, main, the, the mainstream media. <laughs> they have some of these these paranormal people on just to laugh at them. But it's like, uh, you know, even if you confront people, it's coming from an honest place where you're like, well, uh, you know, what about this research here? What's your what's your response to that? I mean, I don't really see that as necessarily bad confrontational. You know, you're not like, hey, no. you're, you know, you're not on there like, hey, you're a fraud and you're a liar. Uh, you know, as I like to say on iShow, you know, we just, I just hand them a rope. You know? <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Uh, t- totally, and you know there there isn't a guest I've had on the show that I wouldn't I- invite back, and you know they don't always accept. But I I, I, I like the dialogue, and I usually find a, a, a plenty of points of agreement with everyone I talk to, and uh, I have no note in disrespecting anyone or putting people down. And science is a hard game to play, and there, I have a certain amount of respect just for these people. Uh, doing it but the same with the ufo community you know i mean you got to push you can't just be a marshmallow too and just let people you know just say these things unchallenged you know there's yeah uh, that's what we're all interested in is these kind of points of conflict i think that's that's where the questions are are still out there exactly exactly uh well something we could explore a little bit after the live show ends but uh you know it's a i thought something that tim tim freak is it uh is that how you pronounce it, or Freaky? Yeah, Freaky, no, Freak. Uh, uh, freak, all right. Uh, the philosopher, consciousness, explorer uh, you describe in the book. He he, he sort of makes some points about uh, reductionism and the idea of science being uh, being reductionist and, and sort of always centering around the it's just uh, thing, where they're always, there are ways to just be like, it's, well, like I just did, it's just this, it's just that, you know, why are the birds singing? It's just because that's the way uh, they mark their territory or whatever, you know, it's very... <laughs> right. it, Annoying. Um, so let's talk about that after we say goodnight to the live listeners, because <laughs> uh, that'll be the tease for the for the live listeners to uh, grab the MP3. Big thanks to Jim Lydica in the chat room. He was a big player in there tonight and made some really good points, I think, about uh, the conversation as it was unfolding. Uh, you can find out more from Alex at Skeptico.com. That's Skeptico with a K. Tons of shows on there, and I presume all this stuff is free, right, man? Just like you, Tim, all free, no sponsors, no subscriptions. 
Exactly. No subscriptions, no network, no rules, uh, and no comparisons, I guess, in a lot of ways. We're, we're, but in some ways, we are very comparable programs. Uh, that's what I liked about your book. That's what I like about your show. It really comes off as one man's exploration into the questions that that vex him. And that's really the same way that all of America is. So I'm actually going to really uh, try and dig into the Skeptico archive and check it out. And, of course, the book is called Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything. It's from Anomalous Books. Anomalous Books is a fantastic publishing house. They put out some tremendous stuff and have actually supplied BOA Audio with tons of great guests over the years. So head on over to Anomalous Books and pick up Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything. Thanks again to the live listeners. Alex, stay put. We're going to bid them farewell in a moment, and then we'll continue the conversation. Okay, Tim. All right. So back to the point that I was making as the British lady started talking you know it's I thought Tim Freak's points really too he gets he talks about mystery the mystery of of you know all the unknowns I guess you could say and you talk a lot about the question of uh why are we here and my personal life philosophy is that the uh the answer to why are we here is is actually like really meta it is to ask the question of why we are here to turn itself Mm -hmm. on itself Mm-hmm. That's that's really what drives my whole life. You know, people ask me why I do this. It's like, you know, because I believe at the end of the day, the answer to the question of why are we here is to ask that question. So if you're not you know, doing that in your life, then you're missing the whole point of life. Uh, that's you know, I may be wrong about that. Maybe other no, people. No, I, mean, I think that's incredibly uh, a profound and has a real deep connection with. You know, I was referring to before. The skeptico, you know, it's it's funny. I, I've never been a big uh, synchronicity guy, but I've been much more open to them lately. And I've had a couple lately that have just kind of blown me away. But the whole freaking skeptico show is a synchronicity. You know, I name it skeptico, and I wasn't even sure why. I can't even tell you exactly why. You know, I'd done a little bit of research, and I found this, you know, ancient Greek philosopher, Skeptikos, and I go, ah, oh, there, Skeptikos, looked it up, you know, oh, okay, that's available, I'll take it. Years later, I find, this is, think about this with relation to what you just said, which I think is really so cool. These ancient Greek philosophers, they would conclude nothing. Their discipline was to only question, 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 question never come to any firm conclusion. Isn't that the essence of what you just said, you know, to say, uh, what is the purpose of life? Well, the purpose of life is to ask the question, what is the purpose of life? And to keep asking the freaking questions. Right. So I think that's, I think that's amazing. I think that's really deep. And it goes to that sort of segues in his, in his section there, you know, to the reductionist aspect of science. Right. And it's like, you, you know, it's, it's a, I've often complained to the skeptics because they mince words and they argue semantics and stuff, but it is a semantical argument in a sense where it's like science seems to be focused more on explaining all costs as, yeah, opposed, right. to, as opposed to, you know, asking the question of why, you know, or trying to figure things out. It's like it, there's a difference between trying to have an explanation and trying to actually figure it out. Well, you know, you mentioned Tim Freak, and, and I, I think he's really, he, he's got some beautiful poetic things to say, and he, he's a top-notch philosopher, but he's just a great storyteller, too. Hmm. And I love that it's just thing, you know. It's like, 
you go, oh, man, it's fucking a beautiful spring day and the birds are singing. And the scientist says, well, that's just like you said. It's just them marking their territory and they're looking for a maintenance. Well, it, it, it might be that, but it's not just that. You know, it's this beautiful thing. Or I looked into my daughter's eyes, you know, the first time I laid eyes on her, and I felt this incredible emotional connection. It was just amazing. Well, that's just the neurological firing of your brain and the chemical. Well, maybe that's part, but it's not just that, Mother. It's It's more than that, you know? I mean, and science has battered so many people into thinking that to even entertain thoughts that it's more than that makes you somehow lesser, makes you kind of less smart, makes you less, you know, scientific and less intellectual. And it's just bullshit. They've just they've just bullshitted themselves and twisted themselves into knots with this ridiculous, absurd shit that you are a biological robot in a meaningless universe, and as we've talked about for the last two hours, all that shit's been falsified. It's just true. But we're stuck in this world. We're, we're stuck in this paradigm. It's really very frustrating, you know. And uh, I've tried to work with the skeptics, but I just find them to be too, too reductionist. That kind of that's what really made it stick out to me when I read the Tim Freak section in the book. It was like it's exactly what it is. They're just they're. Just trying to explain stuff without really trying to question it, and there is a distinction there, and it's very frustrating because, uh, you know, it goes right. back to what you know we the, said. It's like why don't they just look? If you're really passionate about disproving UFOs, disprove the best cases. That's <laughs> that's there's no you know there's no if answer buts about it. You know what I found, um, and it's kind of taken me a long time to come to this conclusion because it was. It's just too hilarious to even believe. But the the skeptics are really just like the fundamentalist religious people that they rail against. They're just like them. They're the mirror image of them. And, you know, it's like if you've ever talked to, and I don't want to uh, offend anyone, but then at the same time I don't really care if I offend anyone. Mm -hmm. If you've ever talked to someone who's um, very uh, strictly religious, like Christian apologists, you know, it's the same way. They're just, it's, they're working backwards from where they have to get at the end of the day, which is their version of their scripture and their holy books and how their whole thing works out. Right. And you can talk to them till you're blue in the face, but eventually they're going to come back to their end conclusion because they're working the opposite the way that science is supposed to work, which is from the bottom up. They're working from the conclusion, and then they're working backwards, and they're only looking for some kind of magical mystery way to get back to that conclusion that they can, that they can, you know, hold on to their beliefs. And that's, I think, the game that's being played by the skeptics, and whether they know that, and whether they're they're being driven by it by their own fear, or whether someone is kind of orchestrated partially, you know, they're where they've left the little breadcrumbs for them to follow, I don't know. But that sure seems to me like the game that's being played. Right, and the system rewards them. I mean, look at Bill Nye. He's like a celebrity, um, you know. For he, he and he's really uh, he's really a hardcore debunker in a lot of and, and he, straight up, not in a lot of ways. He's a straight up hardcore debunker. So 
but but he's rewarded. You know, I saw him on Real Time with Bill Maher this week, and I was like, this is ridiculous. What could this guy possibly have to add to the conversation? And he, yeah. and, uh, and he had nothing to add to the conversation. It was laughable. But he well, uh, he plays the that's game. Where that's where your wrestling analogy really, really, you know, just kind of stares you in the face. I mean, that's just pro wrestling. I mean, that guy doesn't have any, any contribution to make. Right, right. And it's uh, it's just really disappointing. It's very frustrating. Uh you know, it's been a difficult road to hoe. I'm sure it's the same for you. How do you how, how do you grapple with that frustration? You know, I mean, how, how when did you first start doing this show? Like in 2007? Yeah, 2006, talk- two, 2006, 2007. Yeah, so we're talking like eight or nine years. I mean, there's a frustration level, I'm sure, that you've reached at certain points. I know I have, where it's... You know, mostly it's when during that that exciting time that you mentioned, where you're doing the research and you're reading someone's book and you're sort of throwing your hands up, like, "Why? I don't want to live in this world, man." That's kind of the, the reaction I have when I read this stuff, because it's like I don't want to live in this world where where this this research is being completely ignored and, or or marginalized, you know, or this information is not available to fucking everybody, and uh, you know, it's very frustrating. You know, then you get them on the show, and I just try to hammer. For me personally, I just try to hammer the point that people need to know this stuff. But I mean, how do you how do you grapple with uh, with keeping this going in the face of a scientific world that continues to keep the doors shut to all the strange and unusual stuff? Well, that's another really deep question, and I don't talk a lot about um, this part of this thing for me, but. Now, for me, Skeptico's really kind of taken me in some other directions, too. And the other directions it's taken me is, you know, if you deal with, let's say, the near-death experience, yeah, it kind of throws the consciousness thing and it falsifies the scientific paradigm that we're in and all the rest of that. But, buddy, you and I know that it does something else, too. It kind of takes you into this other realm of shit, you mean I'm really not going to die? And then you go look at the reincarnation research. There's some very good reincarnation research. Again, it's, it's it, you know, if, if people are put off by the idea of reincarnation research and they want to go, oh, phooey, you know, woo-woo uh, and all this, you know, again, and like I was saying about there's a natural history. Well, there's millions scratch that billions of people who believe in reincarnation but there's thousands and thousands and probably millions of people who have direct experience with feeling like they have reincarnation so here's what happens there's these guys at the university of virginia it started with this guy named ian stevenson Uh very highly uh, acclaimed psychologist, psychiatrist, and his work has been followed up by Jim Tucker. Again, University of Virginia, top-notch university. And I just interviewed him, interviews up there on Skeptico, anyone can go listen to it. But Tim, here's the deal. You, you got kids, typically between two and four years old, who will spontaneously start recounting past lives. Yeah. They'll go, I used to be this. I used to, so this stuff comes up. So this is the phenomenon. Like you can't ignore you can ignore that if you want, but why would you? So then you go and you scientifically investigate that, which they do. You know, we have ways of investigating whether you know people's stories line up and you know, all the rest. So that's what they've done. You know, and people have looked at that research. They, they 
that research is solid, and no one has been able to find any alternative explanations for that research that stand up. It's like the near-death experience thing as well. Right. So, but man, when you put that together, you know, you put together this near-death experience, you put together this reincarnation stuff, and you say, hey, if I'm thinking that this world is all there is, I'm just shutting myself down to some larger reality. And I can't tell you what that larger reality is and all this, but I'm, it does kind of soften the blow of all the shenanigans that go on and the hopelessness that goes on, you know, it, that, that you face and that I face. And, you know, maybe this stuff doesn't matter so much. Maybe it really is about what you just said a few minutes ago. Maybe it really is about the quest hmm. for knowledge. It's about asking those questions. It's about doing your best to, you know, share what you find with other people and letting that journey change you. Maybe that's all you're supposed to do. You know, you're not supposed to reach some finish line. And I guess I'm saying you, what I really mean, that's my conclusion, you know. So it doesn't necessarily matter to me how many people listen to the show, how many people read the book. I just trust that if I'm doing my thing the right way, it's all going to work out the way it's supposed to. Profound uh Profound thoughts, man. That's kind of uh, the way I feel too. I'm not a big, uh, I'm not, I'm not out there throwing my name out there and trying to get my show all over the place. And you know, I kind of think of our show as kind of like an acquired taste, or you, you have to, yeah, you have to be in the know to know about it. You know, and yeah, yeah, I'm I hear not you. interested in those who aren't in the know. So, uh, but so, you're, but uh, you're, you know, I mean, I, I really, you know, I, I was just your persistence and you're keeping at this. I think is is so important because I think you bring you bring a history with you to every show that you do that would be lost. And you know, who the hell's going to do it, Tim? <laughs> who's going to do it and who's going to continue to do it, you know? I mean, people are going to come in, they're going to get all jacked up and they're going to dabble in it for a year or two years. But who's going to stick it out and, and be in it for the long haul? I mean, there's, it's just a unique perspective, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was looking forward to and enjoyed uh, talking to you. You know, it's uh, people who have done this for this long are kind of few and far between. I mean, I've seen plenty of shows pop up. And like you said, you know, people get jazzed about it and they like doing it. And then after a couple of years, they kind of uh, find something else to do. You know, you have hey, to have Larry King, huh? That's our model, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Charlie Rose and Larry King. Still out there doing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, man. So I'm trying to think. There's nothing else really. Uh, there was one big thing, but let's leave that for the book. Uh, folks should check out the uh, the part in the book about the Darwin conspiracy. Because I feel like if we get into that, it's going to take another like 20 minutes. And it'll give away a big part of the book uh, that, that's pretty mind-bending stuff uh, that I was blown away by. And like I said, uh, reading... Reading your book, it was like I got to get this Darwin conspiracy guy on the show, but it's all yeah really delved into there in the book. So folks, look for that part of the book and uh, and really dig into it, folks. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Like I said, uh, it was a combination sort of of your journey and also I really like how you challenge these folks. Um, you know, it's funny. I had Stan Friedman on. Uh, obviously, I have him on every year for the holiday special. I think it was this year that it came up where it was just like, you know, why do you even bother? 
answering these people that just keep throwing these ridiculous arguments your way after all these years. And he's like, if I don't do it, nobody else will. And it's like, I'm glad that what you're doing is challenging these people. And and as I said, I was amazed that you get some of this stuff on the record, like with Blackmore and Watt saying these ridiculous things and and the way Ben Radford handled uh, his whole thing. It's like, you know, it's just amazing to me. And, uh, you know, I like, I probably, we probably railed on the science and skeptical community enough, but eh, I just uh, I got I got real issues with, with those realms. <laughs> well, I, man, I hey, it, was, it can... was super great connecting, and uh, you know we'll definitely have to uh, stay in touch. And uh, you know, let me know if you ever want to come on uh, Skeptico and talk about something. We'll make that happen. Yeah, dude, I'd be more than happy to come on your program anytime. I think. Uh, I think it would be a unique and interesting perspective for your listeners uh, to hear from somebody who's been in the trenches. You know, I've, I've been a few trenches over from you, but we, we've been in the trenches together for a long time, uh, sort of <laughs> dealing with all this as it unfolds. And uh, like I said, I really enjoyed the conversation. I have a feeling uh, it's just the first of many, Alex. So, folks, check out Skeptico.com. That's where you can find out more from Alex. And the book is Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything. And that's available from Anomalous Books, and you can get it all over the place as well. Thank you, Alex, once again, and uh, let's keep in touch, my friend. We will, Tim. All right. It was awesome. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. There you go, folks. That was Alex Sakiris talking about why science is wrong about almost everything. And, of course, as we've been talking about here on the show, he is the producer and host of the popular podcast, Skeptico, which you can find out at more at Skeptico.com. If you're just discovering Banal of America, maybe you're a Skeptico listener who wanted to hear Alex's appearance on the program. Welcome to the party. This is Banal of America. Check out the website, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. There you can find over 200 episodes. I think it's up to 230-something now. Conversations with experts in all sorts of fields and, of course, absolutely free you can find that all at banalofamerica.com. We're also on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America, and that will bring up our page on Facebook where we try to post the latest info on who's coming up on the show next time and all that good stuff. Uh, let me see what else I have to plug here. Of course, as I said, the show is absolutely free at Banal of America. The archive is free. All that stuff is free. We do that via the donations from BOA Audio listeners. Believe me, this live stuff is not cheap. Blog Talk charges an arm and a leg monthly for me to do these live programs. So any donations people can make would be hugely appreciated. You can do that in two ways. You can head on over to PayPal and make a donation. There's the button right at BOA. Or you can make a donation to our P.O. Box, and the address is also right at BOA. That's what we call it, Banal of America. Uh, let me see. I don't know what I could really plug here for the next edition of the program. I know we'll have a show next week, uh, probably on Thursday, March 5th. I can't tell you anything about it because I haven't given it much thought beyond uh, the fact that it'll be next Thursday. But I've got two really fantastic episodes that we taped uh, in January and February that I want to unleash on folks soon. So maybe I'll sit down and edit one of those and get those out get that out to folks next Thursday but I've, but I've also got a couple of folks who I want to have on the live show soon so if I can shoot out some emails and make it happen tomorrow uh, maybe we'll do a live show next Thursday but either way we are definitely going to have a program next Thursday uh, and I'll have all the information on that 
probably by Monday or Tuesday, I'll make a decision on what we're going to do. What else? Somebody wrote on Facebook that they missed the listener feedback, and I didn't really actually prepare anything this time. But in the future, maybe we'll do some listener feedback here at the end of the program when we do the live shows. Since I'm already sort of in the zone of making the program, I'll read some listener emails. Uh, we got a few really interesting ones, actually, and uh, really wish I <laughs> really wish I had prepared for that because uh, we've gotten some interesting emails lately from a whole bunch of folks. And on the next live edition, we'll uh, rekindle BOA Audio listener feedback and try and read some emails. Uh, I'm going to have to put a sticky note somewhere here to <laughs> actually do that. But I'll cultivate some emails here from the mailbag because we've got a ton of them and respond to those here on the live program. Uh I said I want to talk about the trip to Georgia, but I, I really hate rambling and talking on my own. So I'm not going to say too much about it, except uh, that I didn't go on a ghost hunt. Circumstances surrounding the visit really just did not allow for me to uh, walk around in the evening in uh, downtown Savannah looking at haunted houses and stuff. I did take a really fascinating trolley tour and learned about the history of Savannah and really enjoyed the visit quite a bit. It was exactly what I needed because I haven't had a real vacation in years. So it was a moment to step away from all of my various jobs and BOA and just relax, which was awesome. And it was something I really uh, had to do and enjoyed quite a bit. Really, really, really enjoyed it and needed it in a lot of ways. So I feel more refreshed than I have in years and almost disoriented because I haven't had a vacation like that in a long, long time. So when you come home from something like that, everything is strange. And to, to case in point, this is a story, this is a good parade story, but since I'm really kind of on my own here, I will share this tale from when I returned from Georgia. You know, the big thing when you go on vacation is you want to get home and sleep in your own bed. That's the old, uh, that's the old adage about vacations. So I get home, I'm relaxing, watch some TV, Getting to bed that night, my first night home from vacation, all of a sudden I hear this sound. Let me see if I can recreate it using this lighter. Here's the sound. Sounds like that. Really kind of creepy. And uh, I did, even though I didn't go on a ghost tour, I did actually visit a uh, historically haunted pub in Savannah that Jason Offit recommended. It's called uh, the Moon River Brewery. And it's a very fantastic restaurant with awesome, awesome food. I absolutely loved it. So thanks to Jason Offit for recommending that one because it was uh, one of the highlights of my trip. And it is reputedly haunted. And the cool part about it is they let you go downstairs into the completely really untouched basement from when it was uh, the original post office of Savannah or something like that. Then you get to go up to the attic and look around up there. And it's really, really creepy and unsettling. And I didn't see any ghosts or have any ghostly experiences. But... That was the day before I left and came home. Flash forward, I'm lying in bed, I'm home from vacation, I'm hearing this sound like that. Oh, God, what is that? You know, and I'm saying to myself, well, I'm here in Boston, it's really cold outside, I left the heat at a reasonable level, I haven't been around to make any noise, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe I've got a mouse. You know, I probably have a mouse here in my place. So I get up, turn on the light, have a cigarette, uh, kind of wait it out a little bit, see what's going to happen. All of a sudden, I start hearing it again, and I'm, now I'm looking for it, looking around the room. I'm looking in the corners. I'm looking all along the baseboards because, you know, that's where a mouse is going to hide, uh, seeing if I can find any any uh, feces from the mouse and see if I can find any evidence that there's a mouse lurking around. Then I 
then it gets worse because then I start hearing this this scratching, this like scratching sound, and now I'm now I'm getting very uh, unsettled. And part of me was thinking to myself, "Oh Jesus, I hope I didn't bring something back with me from Savannah from this haunted brewery because that's the last thing I need is uh, some kind of ghost or poltergeist in my life." And eventually, I'm following the scratching, and I'm standing near my TV, and I look up, and there's something in the ceiling that's scratching and dropping something like this, and and scratching and gnawing at wood, and it was very, (laughs) very, very unsettling, and uh, that that was two days ago, so I have uh, only heard it sporadically in the ensuing two days, um, hoping that when I go to bed tonight... It will be gone. I heard it briefly last night at about 2 in the morning, but I was so busy doing work for tonight's program that I uh, kind of ignored it, and it eventually went away. But I'm pretty sure it's just a straight-up animal. But the last thing I want is for it to be <laughs> it to be anything of the raccoon, possum, or rat variety. Any of those things, I really would rather it not be. So I'm hoping that it's a chipmunk or a squirrel that somehow found its way into the chimney and is mixed up in the in, in the house somehow. But uh, very, very weird, very weird way to return from the trip. Uh, so there's your listener feedback. There's a story from Banal that uh, is one of the weird ones. And we'll be back on March 5th with an all-new edition of BOA Audio. If it's live, we'll have some listener feedback. If it's not, it's going to be one of these fantastic taped programs that we've been sitting on for a while. They are fantastic, folks. Trust me, I keep saying that, but they are really really awesome stuff, and I cannot wait to unleash them on the BOA Audio listeners. And for more on the Georgia trip, I'll post some pictures on Facebook. So I'll uh, plug in my phone and upload those soon so folks can see some of the stuff I'm talking about and some of the historic buildings and uh, some of the weird things that I saw. For people who are asking about the weather, the snow here is insane. Uh, I'm actually working on a absolutely mind bending, breathtaking fire pit that uh, I should unleash Monday or Tuesday. It is awesome. I've been working on it all winter, working with all the snow. It's like this little snow room with uh, about six-foot-high walls and a fire pit in the middle. But we haven't christened the fire pit yet. We haven't fired it up. But once we do, I'll get some pictures of that and post those on Facebook as well. Uh, And down in Georgia... Unfortunately, the first three days were cold as hell, just like up here, but not as bitter, not as windy. But the final three days were fantastic. 60 degrees, 70 degrees, almost 80 on Sunday, and then 60 degrees again with rain on Monday. And not a flake of snow in sight, which was really uh, which was really strange not to see any snow and then to come back here and just be completely surrounded by it. But I enjoyed the vacation quite a bit. Thanks to all the folks on Facebook who were uh, wishing me Vaughn Voyage. Happy to be back. Loved the conversation tonight. Thought it was fantastic. i got to stop saying fantastic. I keep saying it here. I'm rambling. I've reached the point of ramblage, folks. So it's time to uh, close the book on this edition of the program. Thank you to all you folks out there, the listeners who are new to the show. As I said, maybe you came from Skeptico and you're wondering just who the hell is this banal guy 
as noted, welcome to the party, folks. Dig into the archive. You're going to be have your mind blown by this stuff that we've been producing over the last nine years. And, of course, to the hardcore BOA audio listeners, the people who have been ride or die since the very beginning, thank you for your enduring support of BOA audio. Season 9 has just begun, but I'm, only, I'm already feeling very, very excited about where this journey is going to take us this season. And, as always, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. And on that note, thank you all for listening. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, signing off.